This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. To start this episode of Film History, the History of Film, we are taking a moment to discuss the shooting that happened on a set just last week. This podcast was recorded on Sunday, and details may have emerged since our recording but we want to give our take on the situation and pay our respects to the victim. If you would like to skip ahead to our proper episode, we have a wonderful story about Rod Serling and the Twilight Zone for you to enjoy. You can find that around 20 to 22 minutes in. While this show is primarily concerned with history of film, we felt it appropriate to take some time to discuss the events of our industry. However, we do understand that some of you may just be here for a good time and don't want to be reminded of recent tragedies, so we have provided you with this timestamp if you would like to fast forward. If not, please enjoy our discussion, and thank you so much for listening. All right, yeah, I wanted to start this one off. I know everybody's used to hearing the intro right about now, and don't worry, we will get to that. But I wanted to start us off today. I want to give a big rest in peace to Helena Hutchins right now. Um, The young, beautiful, vibrant wife and mother and also the uh, director of photography on the movie Rust that was recently being filmed in New Mexico, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Starring Alec Baldwin. Um, I just wanted to kind of get into this a little bit because I do feel like, you know, this show is based all around film, and I thought it was, I don't know, such a weird thing to have happened. We we joke around here about how James Cagney era, they used to just use live ammo on set. Mm-hmm. And the whole joke there is how dangerous it all was and how insane it was to film back then. But you would think 2021, you would think we don't have shit like this anymore. But here we are, you know, we've got a director of photography who was killed in action making a movie, you know? Yeah. And, um, yeah, I just, uh, it's, it's, this is 28 years after Brandon Lee was killed and he was killed with a blank. Uh, that's one thing that I wanted to clear up a little bit here is a lot of people were saying this was a prop gun. It was a blank. I mean, now more information has come out in the past few days. This is like three days ago or so that this happened. Uh, that was not a blank. That was not a prop gun. That was a real gun. That was a real bullet. Oh, that, that, um, Alec Baldwin was using. Yep. He did not know that by the way. Well, Okay, so here's my here's my take on it, and uh, this is uh, gonna be come across a little naive because we don't none of us were there, uh, we none of us know the full full story. Uh, obviously, there was gonna be an investigation, there'll be interviews, or maybe a trial. Um, but I would just say in general, whether you think the gun is real or not, you yeah. know that blanks have the potential to kill people, and. If you just between t- for the Brandon Lee thing was different because the guy who shot him was doing what you were supposed to do in the take. Right. No. This was that, this didn't was happen at Point Blank. Did Brandon yeah. Lee happen at Point Blank or was he farther back? I don't I remember. I think it was Point Blank. I think it was. I think that was part of the thing. But it was, it was, it was they were shooting the scene where he got shot in the movie. That but right. like this the Alec Baldwin thing was between takes and whether you think it's a real gun or not. There's no reason to be waving it around. There's Absolutely. no reason to rest your finger on the trigger. I mean the oh, first rules see, of gun safety. The first rules of gun safety are 
The gun is always loaded. Right. Never point at anyone you don't want to kill, and do not leave your finger resting on the trigger yeah. if you're not like actively trying to shoot someone. And like again, again, none of us were there, and maybe I do have these details wrong. That's totally possible, and well, I don't want to place blame um, irresponsibly. But I will say that like if the scenario was he was waving the gun around, like because he was talking of his hands and the gun was in his hand. Mm-hmm. Like, that is gross negligence. Like, the, if it's between takes, you should never wave a gun around like that, fake or not. Like, it blanks have potential to kill people. Like, mistakes happen all the time. Switch-ups happen all the time. Yeah. If it is a fire... If it is a gun of any type, it should be placed, like, on a table, on the ground. You shouldn't rest your finger on it. Like, it's... To me, it's, like, gross negligence, like, oh, all Oh, of around. course. And look, I... I God forbid I defend Alec Baldwin. You know, I, I don't want to do that here today on this show. The man has done reprehensible things, there's no doubt. But also, I do agree he does share some of the blame here. But I just think the most blame has to go to their first AD, Dave Halls, who is a very seasoned guy. The guy's been making movies. The guy was on Fargo in 1996 as a crew member. The guy was uh, on Matrix Reloaded. You know, this guy is no newbie. And for this man... Uh, to hand over a live gun, not a prop one, fully loaded with hot ammunition, and to say that it was a cold gun was literally the deadliest thing he could have ever done. You know. So break down for us the the facts because I still don't know. I've heard I've been following right. the story as stuff trickles out. So like I didn't know it was between takes. And I didn't know, like, what type of gun was this? What were they, like, all these details. I Will you break this down for us, James? Because like, yeah. I don't want to start commenting and giving opinions when, you know, right. I could be talking out my ass. It was and between just takes, so right? Was it wrong. was between takes. Okay. So what they were saying is basically the rough, uh, what I have, the rough story. And, of course, different things will come out. Different, you know, there's people who haven't even spoken out yet about it. Um, of course, Alec Baldwin right now apparently is, like, inconsolable you can't even talk to the man and i don't i that's not shocking you know no, just no absolutely and i don't want to paint alec paul no, of course. Be evil like of i mean course. obviously this was an accident like yeah. this what and he, this is what is he killed a friend like this is like not just a crew member but also like a friend of his like right. i like i was worried that he, you know for his safety like what he might do to himself like in, in yeah me cons- too and yeah. you know dealing with this so like i don't want to sit here and paint Alec Baldwin as the villain, like obviously, like he's I mean, never going to recover from this either. <laughs> Go ahead. Dan. But also, are it, we, it was gross negligence. It was very much gross negligence. But are we yeah. sure that Alec Baldwin didn't mistake her for a paparazzi? <laughs> <laughs> that's actually very good. That's a good. That's good. We can laugh. You know, this is all. If, if you say laugh or cry, you got two choices. This is still the show. So I will. Show, I will. But... I will enlighten the audience that I am a very damaged, traumatized human being, yeah, and I yeah, work yeah. through it's my Gallo's trauma humor. with humor. For Did, sure. the only is way he, to get... Was he known for so... punching out paparazzi or something? Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. But I want to. I want to. Before we stray yeah. too far, I want to break down. Please. What I know of the incident is that day. Earlier that day, the crew uh, left set. They stormed out of set. They walked out. Also, this is uh, definitely worth noting. There is a huge strike right now, the IATSE. I thought they resolved that. No, not yet. No, not still totally. in negotiations. Still right in negotiations. Now. The uh, International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees, basically the head union of all Hollywood unions right now, is striking, for those out there who don't know. Um, We're having one of the biggest industry strikes that we've ever had, and this all happened while they're striking. There had been misfires on set already. There was already dangerous conditions. Um, Really? Yeah. The the prop maker, Maggie Goal, 
said about Dave Halls. She worked with him on uh, Into the Dark on Hulu. And she said, at first he seemed like an older, affable first AD with the usual run of idiosyncrasies, but that facade soon disappeared. He did not maintain a safe working environment. So this man Fascinating. is... Uh, this man apparently has been putting people in danger for a while, and this just so happened to culminate here. See, that um, is... I, I. This is why I'm glad we're clearing up the facts, because I was under the impression that it wasn't the AD who is responsible for all that, that it was the prop master. Right, that and handed the gun and all that shit. So I didn't yeah. even know that there was an AD that was involved that was relevant to this story until today. That's what the investigation is pulling up now. They're basically getting all down to where it trickles down to Dave Hall's here, the first AD. He was the one who cleared the weapon, even though he should never have done that. It was hot. So the story that I have is, you know, the crew is already pissed. The crew has walked off once. Now they're back for the day. Apparently, they managed to get the crew back to the set. Um, someone hands Alec Baldwin a gun. It was probably a prop guy who handed him a gun and said, uh, this is a cold weapon, which means it was no, it's not loaded. It's a prop. And Alec and a few other people apparently were practicing getting it out of their holsters and doing like Western shit. You know, he's like doing gun work, trying to make it look cool. He's Do we know what type of gun it was? It was an old revolver, that's all I know, which is even more, that's what makes this all very dangerous as well. Revolvers are just nothing to be fucking around with, you know, as, as far as like, because there's no safety on those things. So, you know, you pull the trigger and it's it's going, you know. Right. And um, yeah, that's the story that I heard. And I did hear, uh, initially I heard that he had made a joke about maybe I should just shoot you two. And then he like fired at them or something, and it was a it was supposed to just be a joke, but he didn't know he had a loaded weapon in his hand. Mm-hmm. That uh, of course that was the story that came out initially. I don't know how true that is anymore. So wait, so was he when the gun went off? He was like practicing. Yeah, that's what they say. Okay, that's what they say now that he was practicing. Is it, yeah, like the story around. I heard is he was like talking of his hands and yeah, like it just it went like, off. Bang. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I mean, again, you know, like I said, like you said as well, always practice trigger safety. Never, ever point a gun at anyone, even if it's yeah, just Yeah, I mean, rubber. even if you're practicing taking out your holster, you should be yeah. practicing in the direction of no one. But this is the craziest thing, man, and the people who bring you this podcast, Film History, we're all working in the industry all the time. I've been on I, countless sets, big budget, small budget, you name it, I've been there. And you were in a war set, movie. You've I was in guns. a war movie. Yeah, no <laughs> one got hurt in my war movie that I was in. No one got hurt on John Wick. Well, you know, yeah. like <laughs> we're talking about like movies where people should have actually absolutely gotten hurt and they didn't because there's just a level of safety that you have to have on set. And that one of the biggest things is gun safety. Whenever I I did a cop show once and I had a rubber gun. No, no way this thing could kill anyone unless I beat them to death with it. (laughs) And they said, if you pull that rubber gun out of that holster, you are going home and we're getting another actor. And that was like the deal. Yeah, like there's no fucking around. Mm -hmm. So the fact that Alec Baldwin had a loaded gun in his hand, like you said, it definitely has a lot of. And do uh, do the actors not have to go through basic gun safety, uh, like a basic gun safety course? It's Alec Baldwin. It's for thee, not for me. Yeah, absolutely. Especially this is a movie. Rust clearly wasn't the biggest budget. You know, Alec Baldwin's their biggest guy that they could Mm -hmm. get. He's producing it. He's producing it as well. You can't tell the man. 
he's used guns on camera in big budget movies. Like he's Hunt for oh. Red October. He shot people. Like you know. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, this man's been around everything. He's been around everything. What was there supposed to be blanks in there, and it just happened to be a real bullet instead? Yeah. Because like you'd be able I, in a revolver, you could see the rounds in the back. You'll yeah. know if it's loaded yeah. or not, unless it's I, just that and, one. Do blanks so and regular bullets look similar? Yeah, they, they're, they're exactly the, same the same thing, except for from a the bullet. Behind. Yeah, from absolutely look the same, except for a bullet has you know the lead, the bullet itself, and a blank just has this. It's called wadding, so, and it's like plastic or paper at the tip. It still does yeah. come out. It's still very dangerous. That's right. what killed Brandon Lee. The Brandon know? Lee happened because it was at point blank. That's right. what I asked. A blank firing at point blank range is still an explosion, and it's compressed right. explosion coming out of the Super barrel. Dangerous. So, so you uh, can't for, you'll damage and blow somebody's whatever off if you're you blow a hole in the wall if you're next to it. Absolutely. Point blank with a, so. Well, uh, would the for the Brandon Lee situation, like, did they just not know that you couldn't fire a blink that close to someone? Like, There's, and that's again, this is that's gonna kind have, of murky. <laughs> yeah, it's murky, and so will this be forever, unless you were on that set and watched everything go down. And uh, even think about that. Even if you're on set, there's four different people that have passed that gun around that you didn't see what happened. You know, mm. I mean, by well, the time the gun reaches the actor's hands. It's, At the end of the day, it's the actor's kind of responsibility because, especially mm -hmm. with that gun, so like being educated and knowing how firearms works and how to handle them is paramount right. no matter what. Even if you're acting, whatever. If the prop master should know about it, everybody who's actually putting their hands on a weapon should know about it. The same thing with pyrotechnics. Nobody yeah. should be fucking with pyrotechnics unless you're like educated in fucking pyrotechnics. Absolutely. So, you know, I mean, but that revolver in particular, though, you got to like you think it, it uh, moves and rotates when you pull the trigger. So right. you pull the trigger in the round that is loaded, not the one that's already positioned in the chamber. The thing, the trigger rotates it and puts it into position and then the hammer drops and fires. Yeah. So he would have seen on the back of it, it loaded with something. Yeah. Like that's that's for sure. And then unless A he didn't look or B that it was supposed to be loaded, it was just thought to be loaded with blanks. But to say it was completely empty, it's pretty that means like the AD didn't look, he didn't look like can you right. I don't really necessarily believe that. But I don't know how that loaded know. weapon got on set. And and, and regardless and again like Why you, is there a live never, round anywhere? Why is there a live yeah. Why is there a live ammo anywhere in the 100 miles the within only, this set? Yeah. The live. only the only fucking live round should be in the security guards Absolutely. at the gate of the lots gun yeah. or some shit. God forbid Helena, I mean, this is so dark, but who knows? She might have saved a bunch of lives that day. What if they went and got into like a gunfighting scene and people are just shooting at each other with live rounds? Yeah. You know, I mean, as far as it, it seems like the way that this set was being run, how many other guns were live? How yeah. many other guns were real? Well, you know, it's least, terrifying. At least they would have cameras would have been rolling. They could have used something. <laughs> <laughs> Again, dark humor. <laughs> dark humor. But yeah, I just wanted to put that out there. I wanted to start this off with that. I it's just insane to me. I think um, we're headed in a direction where a lot of things are going to change. I mean, look, everybody's been citing uh, like Mayor of Easttown used. Uh, it's all post the war movie that I did was post. Well, that's what that's what someone was uh, posting is like. There's no reason nowadays that you can't do muzzle flares in VFX. Absolutely. Well, and I understand I, some some movies don't have the budget for it. I understand that, yeah. but you know, you it's don't about even to need be... to go that far. Just don't have live rounds. Yeah, just it's, don't it's have any live ammo. It's not a big deal to just not have a live round. If you don't have and a live a round, you, 
Right, it that too. It didn't even need to be blanks. It could have just been one of those powder rounds that does the big, big explodey, explodey. You know, we're fine with that. The sparks coming out of the fucking tip. I don't care. You know, it still looks cool. I mean, I mean, the way need, yeah. like you know our cameras are detecting the details of stuff and the CGI is totally fine for a lot of like far away big battle. But if you're trying to get intimate and you're doing like. Something where you need a close up or whatever. Maybe you do need a replica or something with moving parts that right. really moves and stuff. So I think that I think everybody is is reacting in Hollywood, reacting justly so, very intensely and passionately because of this type of mistake is should never have occurred. Yeah, but, it really got to me this one. This one really hit me hard. I, it's just like I don't know. You see the video where she's riding a horse the day before. She's yeah. a she's a director of photography. I even I put it in here. I put a. Uh, just a breakdown of what the director of photography is, like by very definition. The DP controls everything that affects what the camera is able to capture, i.e. composition, exposure, lighting, filters, camera movements. The director of photography is the head of the camera and lighting crews on set, selects the cameras, lenses, filters, etc. And, you know, it's just nowhere in that description is it like... The most dangerous job in the fucking world, you know. It's just so crazy to me that well, someone yeah. got shot while being a DP. You know, working like with this, Alec Baldwin. I, yeah, I mean, I mean that's it. All, I mean, all film sets are dangerous uh, they, when you get down they, to it. Like, there is a, million, a level of danger. There is a million things that can go wrong on a there's film a level set. Of, you can get electrocuted. Something can fall. That's on you why and, like, the least. That is why handing someone a loaded weapon is like there's already danger here, and we're doing all we can to not make this dangerous mm -hmm. and this man just made it the most dangerous place in the world yeah so is i had a conversation with a good friend of mine and she she was had the opinion that you know because of the strike she's like do you think it's the responsibility of the people managing the set and like the producers and stuff like that and i I was like, sure, they, you know, they bear some of the responsibility for sure. There's no question because they're leaders, they're in a leadership position by very nature of that, they share responsibility. But I was like, at the end of the day, it's whoever's in charge, in my opinion, and th the way I would run a set would be, it is whoever's in charge, like the prop master, if it's a firearm, that thing does not fucking leave sight or right. is under lock and key. Uh, you know, unless it gets handed to the actor and then once it gets handed to the actor, then it's that actor's responsibility. Yeah. And again, you know, that's I mean, the armor on set never keep your finger on the trigger. You can test you can try like test your draw without resting your finger on that trigger. Like yeah. um, and just never. I mean, if he's joke shooting them, like that's also like never point. Like it doesn't matter. Like again, don't point the rubber gun at somebody. Never. You know what yeah. I mean? Like no, you just yeah, don't. You I should mean, never point a gun at anyone. Every every armorer that I've ever encountered has been like military disciplined with the the weapons on set. You know, I mean that's War Pigs was you couldn't even touch. Be. Yeah, you could not touch a weapon that was lying around in the armorer's prop section over there in the trailer. You couldn't touch that shit. You you would look at it. It's cool. Don't dare touch anything. You know, this is all, like, they take it very seriously. So I have no idea 
between that weapon getting from the armorer to the set. And the armorer on Rust, by the way, I heard was like a 23-year-old, like brand new. And that was another thing. Like a lot of people had walked out. Apparently they were trying to hire a bunch of like non-union people. Oh, man. You know, it was a big mix-up. You know, and no one's going to go down for this, let's be honest. I mean, you don't think so? No. I, John Landis killed Vic Morrow <laughs> with a helicopter and two children, oh, wow. and they were like, all right, it happens. You know, that was on camera. Yeah, that was on camera. <laughs> yeah. We have footage of that shit. Do you and- think this is a different time, though? Do you think, like, it's just, you know, back He's then we didn't have powerful. the internet? He's too it's powerful. Like yeah. Well, he's if got Alec too Baldwin much money in down, Do you think the AD goes down? The AD might. The AD will have to face a judge, but, but I doubt. I don't. I don't think so. I think the union's going to protect them, and the union's probably going to be like, "Do you see what happens when you push our people?" Right. Like the, this is an overworked, underpaid, exhausted. You right. know. Yeah, the, for sure, for sure. Horrible and, conditions. Yeah, and almost any set that you're on, you can you can spin that story. You can spin that web. I mean, every set that I've ever been on, you could probably say that things were tense and stressful to a point of irresponsible decisions being made. You know, absolutely. It's Man. a giant shame, but uh, you yeah. know, I still think that it might be that Alec Baldwin is going uh, senile and dis did not know who was pointing a camera at him this time. And he just had a gun in his hand and saw somebody behind a camera and was like, not again, you motherfucker. He's used used to paparazzi back in the day having cameras that big. You know, (laughs) he's like, that looks like a a TMZ camera to me. (laughs) Man. Yeah, big rest in peace, Helena Hutchins. We love you. Um, I just wanted to throw that out there. Sincerity, for sure. Rest in peace. And now we'll get into it. Cue that intro. History. The history. You are about to enter another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land of imagination. Next stop, film history. The history of film. I worked on that, man. I've been working on my Rod Serling. Look, the only thing you have to do is get a cigarette in your lips and don't open your teeth. Just keep your teeth together <laughs> with a cigarette in your mouth. Then you got Rod Serling. We're going to talk about... About to enter it. I'm going to practice that. That's fine. About to enter it. I am so excited for today. This is Rod Serling. I will just put it out there. Is uh, one of my all-time heroes. Favorite people in the world. I, I liken this man to, like, prophets of yore. Like, I think this man was not only a very angry World War II veteran TV writer who smoked five packs of cigarettes a day. Holy shit. I think this man was one of the most brilliant minds to have ever been spawned on Earth, and I'm so excited to tell about it today. And I'm also going to tell you a little bit about Twilight Zone. Why not? Let's do it. A little bit about Twilight Zone. This is the episode to conclude our horror, um, our horror uh, escapades yeah. here in the land of spooky season. 
uh, the last episode that will come out before Halloween. So this is it. This is our Halloween episode. Next year, don't worry. You'll get Halloween. <laughs> Maybe. We'll do it. I swear. I just didn't. I, don't, I wasn't in a slasher mood this month. I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah, we got, you got to have something to come back for next yeah. year. Also, something, not, to keep, something to keep you around. Plenty. Oh. Plenty of seasonal movies. Just wait for Thanksgiving when we bring you, like, Last of the Mohicans or whatever. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> and then Christmas, of oh course, we'll do, like, Die Hard. And then, you know. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, it's I a think Christmas we got to do at least, you know, one Christmas comedy. And I'm sure that there's a good Thanksgiving or ridiculous Thanksgiving movie out there. It just doesn't yeah. pop in my top of my head right now. It's going to be that one about the killer turkey. That Eli Roth made. There's, that, I guess, Thanksgiving movies are a prime like target for, uh, like, if you want to capitalize on a season that's not capitalized on, Thanksgiving is ripe for the taking. <laughs> Isn't Ooh, planes, trains, Friday and automobiles movie. about them going home for Thanksgiving? Yeah, yeah, planes, trains, and automobiles okay. is Thanksgiving. So that that would be a good one to do. I was thinking that too, but I was also trying to think of like. I don't know, Last of the Mohicans or something, you know. Last like of, something. That's very funny, Pocahontas. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> give some, give some, you know, Native American love out there. Fucking not all these colonizing honkies, you know what I mean? <laughs> Today, I'm going to tell you about this man. Uh, he made television against all goddamn odds. We are going to travel through another dimension, through a vortex, and bring you Rod Serling. Um, this man also went to war with studios, Cagney style. But <laughs> really? yeah, but he didn't win as many battles as Cag <laughs> did. <laughs> Rod um, Rod went to bat, and a lot of times they they held my man down. Let's just say that. <laughs> you said uh, you said he was an angry man. He was very angry. He was very angry. At at, at what? Uh, at everything. <laughs> I love him, man. And when I say angry, like. The, uh, his wife Carol says like he never directed his rage in a way that like damaged people. Mm-hmm. It was just angry at the world. You know, <laughs> he didn't like yell at his wife and kids and stuff. He didn't. He never hit a woman. Mm-hmm. We're about to talk about a man from you know this time of this era that didn't hit any women. Wow, <laughs> shocker. <laughs> That's why he smoked five packs of cigarettes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he was just angry though. I mean, every he was kind of that type of dude who. He can't just sit at the bar and drink a beer. It's gonna be a lecture. You know, like we're gonna we are going to talk about the deepest, darkest shit you can think of. That's like that was the type of guy Rod was. Like, hey, you know? good day, man. What's so good about it? <laughs> yeah. There's so nothing good here. Is, this is this is Bill Burr in World War Two. <laughs> He's like, it's not a good day in Tibet. You know, like it's like, oh Jesus. It's like, good morning, Rod. He's like, it wasn't a good morning in World War II. You know, like, that's the type of dude. Like, and I love that. I love that about this man. I think, I think we share a lot of qualities, me and Rod. But uh, <laughs> Rod Serling was born on Christmas Day, 1924, in Syracuse, Shut New up. York. Yes, We're he was. already starting ridiculous. <laughs> yes, he was. He was born on Christmas Day in 1924. Uh, he was Jewish, by the way. So Christmas don't mean shit, you know. <laughs> um, <laughs> his mom, Esther, was a homemaker, and his father, Samuel Lawrence Serling, was an amateur inventor. Uh, who took a job at a grocery store when, when Rod and his older brother were born. I'd like to imagine his dad is like, 
a Wallace and Gromit style inventor. Like yeah. the house is just filled with bullshit yes. contraptions that are like was. making toast and doing a terrible job at it. Yes, he's got <laughs> like a rude Rube Goldberg machine, like doing the eggs. And yeah, shit. yeah, yeah, yeah. His dad's bio sounds like a college kid or high school kid from the seventies, bro. It's like I'm an amateur <laughs> inventor, and then I worked at a grocery store. What are you making bongs in your basement? Yeah, like, <laughs> no, for sure. And this is that was. I think it's very important to Rod's upbringing. From a young age, he learned to be angry. He's like, Dad, can't we just have normal shit? Jesus. None of your inventions work. <laughs> He's like, I don't want the five-minute Rube Goldberg machine to turn the TV on. I just want to watch Captain Kangaroo or whatever. I just want to get up and turn it on. Why do I got to use the machine? He's like, he no, like wait, wakes so. up. He's got all these like wacky, useless inventions. <laughs> like he walks into the bathroom and like some mechanical arm pops out and starts brushing his teeth for him. <laughs> There's like sparks flying off of it. <laughs> Why can't you just be like the kids at school's dads? They're firefighters. <laughs> um, <laughs> this was important though. This was like part of Rod's upbringing. Was I think his dad had. Um, his dad had this thing where, like, well, none of my dreams came true, so hopefully you kids can do something, oh, you know? God. Um, <laughs> and he kind of, they said, uh, Rod's older brother, Robert, said that uh, Rod was always, like, acting out plays, and he was always writing, he was always reading, and so his dad actually built a stage in the basement for Rod and Robert to do their plays for, like, the neighborhood kids. That's really cool. Yeah, his dad was, like, really supportive of them chasing their oh, dreams, cool. you so know? Oh, cool, so he was, like, put all his hopes and dreams on them in a good way. Yeah, yeah, in a good way, in Not a good way. <laughs> He's like, you kids can do it, you know, I He just wanted to invent all the props and the rigging for the set and everything, bro. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and also, I think, I think about it, and Rod, I mean... I think it was like, stop doing plays in my living room, please. I'll, I'm going to build you something in the basement. You know, like, I'm going to build you something. I want the TV back. You know, <laughs> Yo, your plays are getting in the way of my TV turning on machine. <laughs> yeah, and his dad, his dad even lost that grocery store job when the uh, Great Depression hit, and he was working literally as a freelance butcher, just going around whoa. like, oh, what? A, whoa, oh, whoa, whoa! Do you have animals? That's not need a murdering? thing. <laughs> That's not a thing. Do you need animals that need packing up? <laughs> A free what have you fucking ever heard of a freelance butcher, bro? Yeah, that's was called John a Wayne serial Gacy. killer. Yeah. Do you have a cow that you wish wasn't alive anymore? That's called a murderer. He worked as a murderer for for, for one, some mafia outfit. For one nickel, I'll come and hack up your pig. Is there anything that's alive currently that you would very much like to be not alive? Then I have the knife for you. <laughs> I'd also, I'd like to imagine his dad uh, takes his inventing, like, uh, tendencies into his butcher business. So it's like, <laughs> oh he, won't, he won't kill anything with, like, a normal-ass, like, knife. He's got, like, a, a knife crossbow. It's like loading kitchen knives into, like, this crossbow thing to, like, fire out the animals. He's like, this is way more efficient. There's, like, a conveyor belt with, like, a chopping thing that he puts the cows on. Like, They're like, Samuel, you've already killed four of our farmers with this shit. We just want to just... butcher him the old way. <laughs> this is like the the real life version of Fantasia in a butcher shop. He's like, now hear me out. Hear me out. 
It's like, no, no more, no more. How many people have to die? That's why I was freelance, because he kept getting fired from all the butcher shops. <laughs> now, hear me out. Hear me out. It's not just a cleaver. It's just, I'm going to be the Henry the Ford meat of meat markets. It's not, just meat markets. it's not just a cleaver. It's also a dildo. Don't get the sides confused. I'm going to put Sam's meat market on the map. You'll see. <laughs> I wonder about those plays that they were doing in the basement, right? And I always think about this shit when we talk about people like this. I wonder if there were people who were in the crowd of those plays in the basement who were like, see, I knew Rod Serling in his early years. You know what I mean? I knew him back back before he was mainstream, man. You know? In the basement days. I was in the basement days, man. I was in the crowd of the basement series. Um, yeah, Rod apparently was also like... Just a really spastic kid. They said that they would sometimes do this test where they'd all be in the car and Rod would ask questions. And they said after a while they just stopped answering the questions and he would just keep asking more questions <laughs> like with no answers to the previous ones. Oh, God. Like, so he was kind of that type of kid. Oh, God. That kid that's always just like, why? 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 But why? 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 It's like, <laughs> shut up! Sit down and shut up! I'm going to invent a way to kill you. It's going to look like an accident. I also oh. I also wonder like if a way to quell those types of kids is just give them real answers because I feel like yeah. a lot of times like a kid will ask something that requires a complex answer and the parents don't think the kid's smart enough to understand a complex answer so you just like they try to dumb it down but in which doesn't make any sense the kid just asks follows up questions you're like it's, yeah son wishing for immortality is futile we're all going to die someday and one see, day the sun will explode see he'd probably stop asking questions <laughs> <laughs> he'd be silent for the rest of his life do you want me to tell you about earth death kid <laughs> <laughs> In school, Rod was seen as the class clown, and he was dismissed by many of his teachers as, like, a lost cause, you know, especially back in the 20s and 30s. It was one of those where they would just, like, hit him with a ruler and tell him to go back to his desk, you know. Uh, but he had one teacher, his seventh-grade English teacher, Helen Foley, who encouraged him to enter the school's public speaking program and she thought, you know, he just needs a creative outlet, a kid, basically. Uh, schools in the 20s had public speaking classes? Oh, yeah, man. You got to become president somehow, you know? <laughs> Bro, this was before somewhere. sports. This yeah. was like football had just been invented and shit. Like, That's true. He actually wanted to play football, but they told him he was too small. He was five foot four. Which, by the way, in the seventh grade... I, well, that sounds about right. I was confused about that. I think yeah. there's hey. something there. Hey, that's a pretty big motherfucker for five. For that's what I was grade. thinking of the seventh grade in nineteen twenties. Like, yeah. wouldn't he be a giant? Aren't yeah. these kids like two how, feet tall? How, how tall I'm five six getting? right now. Five four. Oh, okay. <laughs> he didn't really grow past seventh oh, grade. He was okay. a very small guy. Oh, okay. Was, yeah, yeah, yeah. Rod Serling. Look, all the best Hollywood actors are, are absolutely. Small guys, yeah, know, yeah, right? yeah. Cagney, right? Yeah, you Cagney know? was around the same height. Absolutely. Oh. Yeah, Tom. Tom Cruise. Cruise. Yeah, yeah. Devin Mueller, yours truly, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's castable height. It's castable yeah. height, you know. Look, uh, we, you can always put an apple box there. You can't take one away. Exactly. You can't, you can't cut them off at the shins. Yeah, who do they yeah. they talked about somebody they had to like build the set higher because they were so tall. It actually does hinder you if you're a very tall actor. Really? They really don't like, yeah, they don't like you past like five Sight lines and depth. It's hard yeah, to I line mean, people up. If you're super tall and you got a bunch of other people that are in the background that are average, you're going to fucking look like Yao Ming. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. I mean, unless unless you want to be in a Marvel movie, which is half of Hollywood now. Yeah. So. <laughs> well, and also they say like. There's a thing about like uh, if you're super tall, getting a love interest role is harder to do because you're all these actresses are like you know 
five feet tall and mm. 80 pounds. Yeah. <laughs> you look like a monster. <laughs> uh, oh, man. <laughs> so he was a castable height. Yeah, he was a castable height. He joined the debate team in the seventh grade and, be- and began his development as the incredible wordsmith that we know him as. Um, he began writing for the school newspaper gaining a reputation as a social activist even in this time. Um, that's one thing that I'm going to tell you all about. Like I was saying, Rod was that type. Rod was a social activist from morning to night. Oh, it, so that's why yes. he was always angry because of all the injustices. Exactly, yes. Yeah, and he was, it, most of the things he was angry about, he was right. You yeah, know, That's cool. one of the reasons why I love him so much. He was angry about all the right shit, in my yeah, opinion. Very you cool, know? okay. Yeah. So, like, if he was around today, like, someone was like, good morning, he'd be like, it's not a good day, it's cool. Yeah, yeah, exactly, (laughs) exactly. He'd be like, it's not a good day because our fucking schools are segregated still, (laughs) you know? Like, yeah, that was his type, and I loved that. He was, uh, he was even a speaker at his high school graduation later on. Oh, man, so there's, uh, that kind of explains, there's a lot of, like, social undertones in the Twilight Zone episode. That's what it's all about. That's what I'm going to really tell you about today is, like, the, the TV writer and activist who was Rod Serling, you know? And uh, oh, by the way, I want to put this out there. I want to put a big shout out to one of our fans and my public speaking teacher in the tenth grade, Miss Pearson. And she'll be super hyped to hear <laughs> what this. What up, Miss Pearson? What up, Miss Pearson? She was my public speaking teacher at Brandon High School, the old one, not the new one, the one that was cooler. <laughs> and uh, she, I, I don't think I would be sitting here doing film history today if it were not for Miss Pearson. I was cool. the same way. I had the yeah. same shit with Rod Serling, where like. All I wanted to do was make everyone laugh. I didn't give a shit about school. You yeah. know, not really. Yeah. And Miss Pearson was like, but you can do both. Can do both. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, like you can be creative. There's classes for that. There's classes for that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So shout out to you, Miss Pearson. And if you guys have any teachers you want to shout out, go ahead. I'll open it up to Dev and Drake. But I just wanted to shout out to Miss uh, Pearson. Big shout out to Mr. Barnes. There you go. Uh, Mr. Barnes was my film history teacher. Nice. And, <laughs> and he was also um, my uh, AP uh, language teacher. Nice. And uh, Mr. Barnes wa- is credited with making me understand that art means something. Wow. Um, because like you hear this in English classes all the time growing up, like you, but you're reading incredibly boring books and then you would have teachers try to explain that like the door is blue for a reason. The fucking Canterbury tale. And I would just roll my How eyes every you? time and be like, <laughs> I, like I just didn't get it. Like it didn't click. Cause I didn't like the books. The subject matter was boring. And so I wasn't hearing the in artistic intention behind these decisions that were being made until I took this film history class and we watched um, 2001 Space Odyssey. Yeah. And l- literally, it took us six months to watch this movie Amazing. because he would pause the movie like literally every that. five seconds. I love that. And we would have to analyze the frames of the movie. I love that. And through that, I understood. I yes. was like, oh, art means something. Yeah. Like artists make uh, like actual like intended choices when creating. Absolutely. And Barnes, Stanley Kubrick, 2001 Space Odyssey, I fell in love with artistic storytelling and it mm. set me on a creative path to yeah. like pursue like video games and movies and like being a storyteller myself and stuff so yeah it's all because mr barnes i think everyone everyone can remember that teacher what about you deb you got any of them yeah uh, my favorite teacher was me big shout out to deb yo your my favorite uh, teacher is you too deb. you know what i mean i love staying late after class in your class you know what i'm saying oh man uh it's no i mean i had, a, I had a mentor <laughs> i had a mentor who was my theater teacher for years and uh, a good good friend of mine and when i 
When I went to college, uh, I changed my major in college from investments to uh, education, and oh, yeah. I became a teacher. Wow, and that's I taught. Right. Yeah, I was serious. I was half joking, but half serious. I taught um, musical theater at a performing arts high school wow. that was like a fame, so you had to audition to get in and shit. That's incredible. And, uh, that's it was just a head full, though. I was in my early 20s, and it was like. There was a lot of like life problems that these kids would bring me. And I'm like, I'm a fucking kid myself. I don't know how to deal with this. And then, you know, I'm dealing with stage moms that are bashing (laughs) crazy. And then my students are the most dramatic of the dramatic teenagers. And they had, they're so dramatic, they had to audition to get into the dramatic school. Like it's, (laughs) so it was just like, a lot at a young age, and it's something that I love, but I would definitely want to come back and revisit uh, later in life. But when I had like more episode. wisdom and more <laughs> offer to offer, but I love yeah, that. no, I mean, I, I, shout out to all the teachers out there because I have a, a huge, immense respect for definitely. understanding firsthand what that entails and all that drama and bullshit that comes with it. And, uh, you know, the school boards and the school districts usually suck. And they're usually a pain yeah. in the ass to deal with. Yeah. So, I no, get it. for sure. Shout out to the teachers. Y'all rock. Yeah, Miss Pearson gave us an assignment once. And I was like, yeah, this this doesn't test me. And so, I wrote, like, <laughs> she gave us an assignment to give, like, a one-page speech. And I came to class with, like, 20 pages. She's like, okay, well, then read it. Like, <laughs> fucking read it then. And then we spent, like, the next two classes, me just fucking reading this thing. And she was like, that was actually really good. Thank you. <laughs> she was like, do you feel better now? You know? I was I'm, like, actually, yeah, in a way I do. I'm sure all the kids hated you, though. Yeah. They're oh, like, they, they, they were so <laughs> bored in this class, I'm sure. And I was just like, no, I'm having, like, an experience here, you know? <laughs> oh, incredible. Nah, they weren't bored. I'm just kidding, Miss Pearson. Nobody was bored. We were all on board. Well, I mean, the kids were just like, okay, so we got to listen to James talk for, yeah, yeah, for yeah, the next yeah, three great. classes. Thanks a lot, asshole. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't get to hey, do my speech for four they days. Get, they get to chill, all right? <laughs> chill and listen to my, my amazing What was that speech talents. about? So it was a story about she wanted – the writing prompt was uh, don't throw rocks if you live in a glass house. That was it. And it was basically like don't judge others, you know, et cetera. I made a 20-page, like, dissertation, uh, and it involved a story about, like, a mobster and who was, like, I don't even remember the whole thing. I, I Maybe it's, it's somewhere. This was back when we used to write with, like, charcoal on the walls, you know, so I don't even know where this thing would be anymore. But I was going to say, did you chisel it into a tablet? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you can find a, a copy pen. of this. You have to read it. Oh my well, god, I'm I'll Patreon read it on bonus, Patreon. Yeah. Yes. Miss Pearson will just have PTSD. <laughs> she listen to the podcast? Yeah, she listens oh, to the incredible. podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Incredible. Um, speech all right. history, the history of speech. <laughs> <laughs> James history, the history of James. Uh, this English teacher for uh, Rod actually not only got him into his public speaking and stuff, she also kept him out of World War II when it broke out during his junior year of high school. Well, she kept him out for a while. Mm. Uh, he wanted to drop out of school in the 10th grade and go to World War II. But she said, war is a temporary thing. It ends. Education does not. Without your degree, where will you be after the war? Ah. So he decided to stick it out. Um, he he went through the public speaking program his whole... That's adorable. Yeah, war yeah, yeah. War never ends. War never Clearly ends. War never, never changes. The... <laughs> <laughs> Clearly they've never met the Cheneys. <laughs> 
Rest in peace, Colin Powell. <laughs> yeah. Weapons of mass destruction indeed, my man. Uh, <laughs> I'm so sad the war criminal died. <laughs> uh, Rod did hold off until graduation, but he joined the Army the day after graduation following his brother, who had already been in there for a bit, his older brother, and after basic training, he shipped off for the Airborne, the 511th to be exact. I'd like to imagine, like, his parents were seeing him off on the train, and his dad's like, take this with you, it'll help. And it's one of those boxing gloves on the spring, the spring-loaded boxing gloves. He's like, you really suck it to them Nazis, all right? Brink, 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 brink. I don't know why I hear that every time. I just see him with, like, a bunch of, like, that Dick Van Dyke in Mary Poppins, you know, with, like, a one-man band. He's, like, seeing off Rod to war. <laughs> Raj is holding this sprinkler boxing gun, <laughs> seething mad. <laughs> Give it to them Nazis, son. <laughs> oh, my God, man. Um, but, dude, Rod got into the shit in World War II. Like, if combat was what he was looking for, this man was not disappointed. I, I had no idea about this until researching for this episode. This man went through World War II. Like, it was no fucking joke. It was 1944. It was on the tail end of shit, mm-hmm. which is almost... An even worse time to get in. You mm-hmm. know, like, now it's like the most highly trained people mm-hmm. are the ones who are left, you know, for... And, uh, yeah, they put was him he in... in the Pacific, or was yeah, he Yeah, he was in the Pacific Theater oh, with the... God, yeah, that with, sucks. Yeah, he was jumping out of airplanes in <laughs> the Philippines. That's so much worse. Yeah. And I love the Pacific. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, man. Uh, yeah, good series. Everybody go watch that shit and see just how hellacious that shit was. He was one of the paratroopers. Uh, however... They were being used at the time as light infantry during the Battle of Late. Oh, I'm going to murder these names. <laughs> L-E-Y-T-E. He and his unit were like a mop-up team. So they would go in afterwards and like clean up all the fucking bodies and blood and oh, shoot whoever's God. left. Yeah, yeah. Jesus. Yeah, yeah. Real fun job. Uh, for a variety of reasons, Serling was transferred to the 511th Demolition Platoon, nicknamed the Death Squad. For its high casualty rate. <laughs> Whoa. And according to Sergeant Frank Lewis. What are we? Some kind of suicide squad? <laughs> yeah, dude. Oh Ron was in God. the suicide squad. <laughs> His Sergeant Frank Lewis, who led the demolition squad, said, Yeah, he must have screwed up somewhere because apparently he got on someone's nerves enough to like land here with us. Wow. You know, like the fucking the suicide squad. But <laughs> that's the best way of putting it, to be honest. Sergeant Lewis also judged that Serling was not suited to be a field soldier he didn't have the wits or aggressiveness required for combat which is funny the wits the wits who doesn't have the wits for combat (laughs) or the aggressiveness yeah the aggressiveness he's got forrest gump had the wits for combat (laughs) he's got that springy boxing glove (laughs) it's like i don't know this guy i don't know if he's i don't know if he's cut out to be in the uh, death squad here Lewis said, uh, this is a comic book? <laughs> Lewis said that Serling and others were in a firefight once, trapped in a foxhole, and apparently Serling was just kind of chilling. Like, he, wasn't, <laughs> he wasn't like shooting. He wasn't. They said uh, he. They realized his magazine was empty. He didn't even have any bullets with him. So he was just <laughs> like, "I'm gonna just chill until you guys are done with this shit, and then you know we'll be done." He's like, "This is a prop gun, right?" Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, that would have worked. <laughs> Rod's time and late shaped his writing and political views for the rest of his life. He saw death every day in the Philippines at the hands of his enemies and his allies and through freak accidents. Listen to this shit. 
Rod and there was another Jewish private named Melvin Levy. Levy was standing up. They were all like sitting around on a beach in the Philippines, kind of waiting to go to somewhere else. And <laughs> waiting to go to waiting somewhere to go else. to you know be almost murdered elsewhere. And Melvin apparently was given this like kind of like a stand up set to the guys. They're just all chilling, and he they're all sitting down. He's standing up. A fucking crate comes flying down from a plane that was dropping, like, rations and shitty food and shit and decapitated this motherfucker. What? Right in front of Rod's eyeballs. Oh, my God. Yes. They're sitting there. One minute he's giving, like, a corny-ass joke, and the next minute his head's off. Oh, my God. And that's not even in combat. They're just chilling. Like, that was, I think... It kind of fucked up Rod Sterling just a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you, yeah. You, what would what would imagine? It's like, <laughs> is this... it safe to say that uh, his stand-up bombed? <laughs> <laughs> he lost his head over that one. Ooh, but, uh, there you go. That one's better. Years later, Rod was just sitting at a bar, clutching a glass of whiskey on the rocks. Yeah. And someone comes up to him. He's like, "You all right, man?" He's like, "Are we ever all right? Are we ever okay? What is when is the box coming for me next?" Yeah. He's looking over his shoulder all the time. For real, that did that is kind of they said. You never, you never feel safe ever again after no, that. No, he said. That Get like, that goddamn crate out of here! I told you, no crates. <laughs> and if you watch Twilight Zone, that is a theme throughout the show. Is like the uncertainty of death. It can, mm-hmm. It's around every corner. It's coming at it. This is why the man was so angry. This is why the man was not a happy man. You know, <laughs> death is just around every corner for Rod Serling. That is that's the way he lived. No um, wonder he smoked five packs a day. He had to yeah. calm his fucking nerves. Because yeah, he, like, he literally thought the sky was falling. <laughs> literally one day the sky fell and killed his friend <laughs> in the middle of a joke. I wonder what the joke was. I would love it. He's like, take my wife. No, really. Take her. <laughs> and then fucking. Can you uh, imagine that that joke haunting you for the rest of your god, days? Oh, my God, If Rod ever heard someone make that joke again, he just flies into like a rage. What if it was like a knock-knock joke? So every time he hears a knock on the door, he's like triggered as fuck. What if it was a knock-knock joke that the never the guy never finished? Oh, God. Like, that... Knock-knock, who's there? Orange. And then he gets beheaded. That sounds like, like a orange. Twilight episode. I always wonder <laughs> what the end of that joke was. I always wondered, Orange who? Orange who? He's like shaking, shaking the guy. Yeah. <laughs> orange who? <laughs> Someone oh, didn't God. want me to know. <laughs> So, uh, Serling returned from the successful mission, I guess you could call it, in late. They killed everyone they needed to kill, <laughs> and he returned. And uh, he had two wounds, including one to his kneecap. He got shot in the kneecap. Holy shit. That's yeah. not fun. How do yeah. you walk again after getting shot in the kneecap? Not very well for the rest <laughs> of his life, actually. <laughs> turns out being shot in the kneecap on top of jumping out of airplanes every day is real bad on the knee. It's just not great. <laughs> <laughs> What I heard the cure for it was, though, <laughs> bottle of whiskey and five packs of cigarettes. Yeah, and Dr. Feelgood coming over to the house, you know, with that yeah. injection of meth, meth and shit. Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> but this also, this didn't keep him from combat. General Douglas MacArthur deployed the paratroopers for their usual purpose on 1945. Uh, on February 3rd. You might remember me mentioning MacArthur in the Will Rogers episode when Will's daughter married MacArthur's son and divorced him a year later and never married again and picked up ladies at a bar for the rest of her life in Monaco and her fucking awesome life. That oh, is right. Yeah. I forgot that there was some intertanglement with the MacArthur family on that one. Yeah, That's man. Wild. Yeah, this is the guy who uh, old Rod was serving under at the time. Wait, is uh, MacArthur Park named after this guy or is that a different MacArthur? Yes. 
Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, I, I think that's yeah because MacArthur Parkway down Orange County, like pretty much anything MacArthur on don't the West Coast started. is gonna be. Don't get me started yeah. on Griffith Park being named after D.W. Griffith. Clearly, but they're gonna hide it from us forever. But it wasn't right. We looked no, up. It was we looked Griffith. it up. Yeah. It was absolutely not D.W. Griffith. <laughs> it was like a man, like D.W. Griffith, was like a sperm when this man was alive. So yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I take that all wasn't back. Wasn't this man like? Didn't he like save puppies from or something? Was he like a saint? Yes, he dropped that. A crate full of food on the guy's head. That was him. That's his last name was Griffith. It was. It was. Uh, it Can was you w- imagine if that wasn't food and like it just popped out and it was like you know a sofa? Yeah. Yeah. On. I was like something that, that they didn't need at all. Absolutely. <laughs> it I was. Mean, it was Will Rogers and his buddy Wiley driving flying yeah. by. He was like, "We're getting low on fuel. Hey, Dump some of the cargo. We gotta drop some weight." <laughs> For real. And I mean, even even if crate full of food it's like what like fucking rations and horrible shit you know what a shitty thing to be killed by eat your blood food yeah uh colonel hagan led the 511th parachute infantry regiment as it landed on tagate ridge uh met the 188th glider infantry regiment and marched into manila minimal resistance until it reached the city where vice admiral shanji iwabuchi jesus had arranged his I 17th thought you were going to say, I will butcher this name. <laughs> <laughs> I did butcher it. Uh, he had arranged his 17,000 troops behind a maze of traps and guns and ordered them to fight to the fucking death. So during the next month, battling block by block for control of Manila. That's what he and these guys were doing. They were just Whoa. like locked into the shittiest job in Manila, basically. Um, it was just killing. It was just every day. Like, Rod was in the shit every day and uh, in an urban combat environment, basically. Wow. Yeah. And uh, apparently, portions of the city, when they were taken from Japanese control, local civilians sometimes showed their gratitude by throwing parties and hosting banquets. Uh, during one of these parties, Serling and his comrades were fired upon with artillery. They were having this party... And the Japanese just fucking bombed the shit out of it. And Serling's friends all died, basically. Oh like, God. everyone died. He, he did not have a great go of it. He did not have... This is what I meant. I did not realize how much in the shit this guy was. He also never wants to see a party ever again. Like, party, <laughs> oh, yeah. A party is No more trigger. jokes. No more parties. <laughs> that makes sense now. Yeah, which yeah. makes him... It's just, pretty clear why he's so angry all the time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> which, every time he was like, Every time I have fun, uh, someone got Someone killed. dies. Yes. <laughs> which, I better uh, not smile or I'm going to lose my cousin. Totally <laughs> understandable, but makes him just not a fun guy to be around for the rest of existence (laughs) (laughs) uh it's that rod serling was apparently on a stage like kind of like emceeing the party when this shit happens so apparently he's on stage talking to his fellow you know airborne guys and just a bomb comes crashing through the fucking roof you know and uh yeah yeah no more fun times for rod um <laughs> Serling's regiment had a 50% casualty rate with over 400 men killed around him. Uh Rod was wounded, three comrades were killed by shrapnel from rounds at his roving demolition team by an anti-aircraft gun that they fired at them at one point. And he was sent to New Guinea to recover, but soon returned to Manila to finish quote-unquote cleaning up as they were calling it. His final assignment was as part of the occupation force in Japan. So, during his military service, Private Serling was awarded the Purple Heart, the Bronze Star, and the Philippine Liberation Medal. 
So he was he was decorated. And if you look too, like they had a section on his like, you know, his medals. He had quite the medal collection. He was definitely a World War II vet. There's no doubt cool. about it. And it says his combat experience affected him deeply and influenced much of his writing. Yeah, no shit. <laughs> it left him with nightmares and flashbacks for the rest of his life. And he also was not able to walk like we were talking about. His wife, Carol, said he would, like, fall down the stairs and shit of their house. Like, he was, He's, he was, fuck, he was just cursing the, the, the air, like, the, yes. the whole way. Like, fuck, fuck, <laughs> god damn it. He said, after the war, I was bitter about everything. At loose ends, when I got out of the service, I think I turned to writing to get it off my chest. I was bitter about everything. And at loose ends, when I got out of the service... <laughs> I think I turned to writing to get it off my chest. And I so. imagine veteran affairs weren't any better back then. No, than they are now. no, so no. He's probably really. like get a job. Didn't really get. Yeah, didn't really have much help of his medical bills or like any of the other bullshit they had to. Or you know, obviously there's no counseling back then. Like yeah, no counseling. He got a little bit of help. He got that old GI bill. Um, he went to go rehab for a while after the war. Like his his wounds. I mean, this happened to a lot of those guys. You would be out there and your wounds aren't healing. You're just like, I mean, you're marching 10 miles a day on a bullet wound to the knee type of shit, you yeah. know? So a lot of these guys, it took months after the war for a lot of these guys to even get back in, like, uh, uh, any sort of standard condition, you yeah. know, to, like, operate in your life. Um, yeah, he went to a rehab facility for a while. His knee was very fucked up. And after healing up, he used his GI Bill to enroll in the physical education program at Antioch College in Yellow Springs, Ohio, where his brother had also gone. And apparently he had been accepted there while in high school, but, you know, World War II. <laughs> World War II fucked up the whole plan to go to college for a while. <laughs> he had to go to Manila and watch his buddy get decapitated and shit and never make a joke again. And, um... <laughs> Uh, did he ever talk about if he regretted going enlisting in the service, or he, did he think that like the the what he the 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 call to country was worth what he sacrificed? I think I don't think he regretted going, and I think he thought World War II was necessary, but he was like really anti Vietnam. Right. Yeah. yeah, I'd imagine so. Yeah, yeah, he was very, and he was anti war after the war. Right. He was like he he thought war was as one would be yeah. after you see that. I mean, like. World War II is probably the last black and white war that we had, like where there yeah. was a clear there was a clear villain involved yeah. in the scenario. You and know everything I mean? was filmed in black and white. Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so not everything actually. You know, I mean, because he he went to war for what, uh, like a good reason. Like you know, yeah. the American soil was attacked, and you know that was probably what instigated him and a lot of other people. And then after that, he was just like, "You guys are going to war over this." Yeah, I mean, imagine like, this is yeah. why this is what you're putting people through. What I went through over this, right? It makes you double anti yeah. whatever this shit war is. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, we were we were fighting for something that was worth fighting for, and now mm -hmm. we're just going over there to like kill people in their homes, yeah. basically. <laughs> yeah, don't get me started on that shit. <laughs> Napalm a bunch of kids is what we're doing. But <laughs> that'll be on our more history, the history of war. History of war. <laughs> Napalms. That'll be a fun one. Guess. If you guys thought the beginning of this episode was depressing. <laughs> You ain't seen nothing yet, kids. We can get way sadder. Sponsors will line up. <laughs> Sorry. I, I didn't mean to get all sad with this one. I guess it's just like Rod Serling. You kind of have to. And now we're know. pivoting to our next sponsor, BetterHelp. BetterHelp. <laughs> Blue Chew. <laughs> yeah. The war got you down? We can get you back up with Blue Chew. <laughs> While at Antioch, Rod said, 
I was kind of mixed up and restless, and I kind of liked their work-for-a-term, go-to-school-for-a-term setup. And by the way, again, I want to throw it out there. He, he was in their physical education program, and I was just thinking, can you imagine if Rod Serling had become a PE teacher <laughs> instead of oh doing the Twilight Zone? And I was thinking, the most terrifying <laughs> PE teacher in the history of the world. A fifth grader comes up to him, and it's like, Mr. Serling, I'm tired. He's like, one day, kid, you won't be able to run ever again. It'll just be darkness on your inside of your coffin. He's just smoking inside the gym. Yeah. Like, just like, <laughs> like, you don't tired know what of tired seeing is. the life, <laughs> tired of seeing the life leave your friend's eyes. <laughs> he just has his friend's head. He's my, like holding it up in front of the fifth graders. My grandpa. He starts taking like all the kickballs and drawing faces on them. And <laughs> my grandpa when I was younger. If I ever, because my grandpa was also in World War Two, and he said, um. If I was ever like talking to like I was stressed out, he was like stressed. Yeah, you don't know stressed. Stressed <laughs> is being pinned down in a, <laughs> with one uh, underneath barbed wire of gunfire flying over your head as your buddy dies next to you. That's yeah. stressed. That's how I felt about my grandfather. He was on, my grandfather was on D Day as a captain. I was like, there's oh nothing God. I can tell this man. Like, there's nothing. He went. My grandfather went from North Africa in the beginning of the war all the way to Bastogne at the very end he was in he was there for four years and he did he did d-day that was just one day of his whole career you know it's like what i there's nothing that i can be stressed about like, yeah 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 don't, just don't talk to that man about could you imagine yeah stress you out if, if he was just like you know taking his time with something and you're like pick it up grandpa hurry <laughs> it, it up he's like i got two hours of sleep a night for a year <laughs> He was actually really cool. He was actually, like, super chill, my grandpa. He was like, I don't know. He had a, we'll get into that on War History, the History of War. Yeah. But, no, uh, mine too. Chill guy, but uh, yeah. don't talk to him about stress. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> While at Antioch, Sterling also volunteered at WNYC in New York, a uh, radio station there. He, he volunteered as an actor and writer in the summer of 1946, and the next year, he worked at that station as a paid intern in a work-study program that the Antioch College uh, supported. They had this program where he could, like, work at this radio station. And this was kind of the beginning of, like, where we we're, we're starting to get into, like, Rod Serling territory here now. Okay, know? so he's going to school to be a PE teacher. Yes. <laughs> and he's also getting involved in, like, all these other things. How old is he at the time? He's, let's see, it was 1946. 57. <laughs> he didn't even live that long. It was 1946. He was born in 1924, so he's 22 years old. Okay. When this is happening, yeah. Man, so he dealt with all that stuff when he was like 18. Yeah. Basically. Oh no, yeah, that's yeah. the that's the way these people yeah. lived. Like that's when you hear these stories yeah. about World War II vets. It was like just know that most of them, most of them, of them were lied. 18. Some of them were 16. Yeah. Yeah. Or 15. Even. You know, mm -hmm. we're talking about children for yeah. sure. Yeah, no, he they did a lot back in those days. <laughs> they did a lot. <laughs> they did a lot. So, yeah, he was taking odd jobs in other radio stations around New York and Ohio, and he said, I learned time, writing for a medium that is measured in seconds. Sterling later said of his early experiences, radio was giving him this insight into, like, broadcasting, mm -hmm. you know, and he returned to Antioch from New York with this whole new brain basically this whole new like vision and he became part of their broadcasting systems radio workshop 
and he managed the station within a couple of years. He was like the head of Antioch College's radio station. Cool. It's because everyone was terrified of him. Yeah. <laughs> just let him do whatever he wants to do. I don't know. It's like he's, he's just screaming at us. <laughs> yeah, he took charge of full-scale radio productions at Antioch, which were broadcast on WJEM in Springfield, Ohio. Uh, he wrote and directed the programs and acted in them when needed. He created the entire output for them from 1948 to 1949, that school year, um, all with one exception of an adaptation that he did was all his original writing work. Wow. So if you were in Ohio in Springfield in 1948 and you were turning the dials, you'd hear some of Rod Serling's work when he was just a little a little baby. Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. <laughs> I, I tried so hard to pull up shit. To I could find not. It? Yeah. Yes. I was so trying to find some of his stuff like, that was yeah. on Springfield's radio station. Man, I mean, is there any mechanism to, like, keep radio recordings from there, back it's then? It's out there like, somewhere. I bet if you yeah. went to Antioch College, they probably have like it somewhere. The archives, like the archives. Somewhere, yeah. yeah. The year that Rod Serling was our, yeah. our radio. I, <laughs> How would you guys – so, like, I feel like I have a strong vibe for each of the decades, except for the 40s. Like, what are some characteristics of the 40s that you guys think are in, in, indicative of that time period? Um, I mean, cars were a big thing now. Everybody's like, you know uh, – Is there any but, piece of media that takes place in the 40s that, like, I – like that you could point to oh yeah i mean humphrey bogart was doing his thing in the 40s uh you've still got a little bit of cag going on um i mean you've got the 40s no, but like any like kind of like more modern thing that's like a period piece about the 40s well like, i will did tell anything you happen in the 40s that was noteworthy yeah television okay. basically became a thing in the okay. 40s like um i'll get into it here in a bit but tv as a medium was becoming a thing okay. in, in households before. This is like American Bandstand in the days of that, right? Like Right. Yeah. Or, wait, American Bandstand. Yeah, what year was Isn't it? Isn't that the 50s? I thought it was starting yeah. the 40s. Because this is when they aired the musical acts in, of, like, the Rat Pack, and they had, like, a telethon show where they'd have, like, a different uh, – they'd each come up and they'd sing and then they'd talk and do stand-up. I know they also broadcast uh, the roast, the Friars Club roast. Yeah, yeah. That was like the 40s, 50s for sure, into the 60s. Uh, the 40s was like a lot of the television at the time was being paid for by corporations. You had like Kraft, the people who made cheese. They were putting, they were putting together a lot of television programs. Uh, the American Steel Corporation was like paying for oh, a lot God. of like, yeah. These sound like real cliffhangers, bro. <laughs> like this has got to be great content. Yeah. What kind of show is the American Steel Corporation creating? <laughs> well, I know that one of them they had was the American Steel Hour that would come on television in the late forties, and it was a block of programming we, brought to you by the American Steel Company. But like, what we, kind of show? We just were talk there? about steel and steel-related products. <laughs> so, so these weren't just like sponsors. They they were like steel and steel accessories. <laughs> yeah. So wait, these weren't just sponsors. These were like they were making content around their brand. No, they weren't. They weren't. Well, in a way, yes, but <laughs> but they weren't. They would frame it in a way where they weren't. We still do it. You know, it was basically one big commercial for the steel company, but it would be brought to you as like a. a 
I don't know, a drama about like a, a husband worker? and wife and their family, you know? Yeah. Or, yeah. A steel worker. And he's like super happy to go to work every day, you know? And like, <laughs> more than cheese programming. I want to know what the cheese Rod wrote were. on one of the cheese programs. <laughs> I want to tell you here in a bit how part of Rod's beginning of his career was brought to you by the Kraft cheese. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> We'll do actually. That's very interesting. I will bring you an episode very soon about 1940s television. Okay, that would be a, I think that would be worth worth cool. the listen. Okay, cool. Or we could just do the origins, yeah, of television. Yeah, television in general. I'm super yeah. down. All right, yeah. uh, that so, might be the next episode. Okay, we got cool. a dead yeah. November first. We got a dead month. Yeah. yeah, we got. It's either this or Last of the Mohicans. Oh. <laughs> uh. <laughs> <laughs> See so this or a three-hour boring bullshit <laughs> Daniel Day-Lewis movie. I can't even fucking hardly make it to that shit. Also, also, so are we making an official stand here on film history that uh, television is a part of film history? Like this is one and the same. Oh, absolutely. Okay, absolutely. Yeah, anything. Well, especially nowadays. Yeah, definitely for sure. Yeah, I mean it all wraps up nowadays. Yeah, it's weird because you had that whole time period where, like, uh, I mean. We just talked about Steve McQueen, how he was one of the first crossovers, mm-hmm. one of the first from television actors to go to film. And that is so that's that's not even a thing these days. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, these days, these movie stars can make two million dollars an episode to do a fucking HBO. Yeah. HBO anus program, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, a Disney minus, you know, uh, <laughs> there's you can watch shit on your toaster nowadays. You know, I mean, I was watching. Uh, Ted Lasso on my on my monitor on my freezer. So Sean and I went to go try to see the new Doom movie on the night on um the, the Thursday night preview basically. Yeah. And we had tickets to go see a Universal City Walk, but we had forgot to account for the Hollywood Bowl traffic. Oh jeez. So we were sitting in the car like stuck in gridlock traffic trying to get through the Hollywood Bowl area to get to City Walk. And we were like, fuck, the movie's starting. And we're like, maybe we could start the movie oh on our God. phone. So we propped up the phone on the HBO dashboard and they watched it like the first five minutes before we turned it off. We were like, this is the worst way to watch this movie. Yeah. Let's just see it tomorrow. Yes, dude, literally <laughs> trying to watch that on your phone. <laughs> on the way to the get to the theater to see. We, well, we were hoping we just missed the first 10 minutes. But then like <laughs> that estimated arrival time kept ticking up and up and up. We're like, we're going to at this rate, we're going to watch half this fucking movie on our phone on the dashboard of the car. Yeah. We're seeing it tomorrow. I remember people not liking Dunkirk. They were like, well, I tried to watch it on my iWatch, and it just wasn't that good. You know? <laughs> just, I didn't get it, you know. Like, who, who was even in it? Like, I couldn't even tell. They were so small. <laughs> they were so tiny. These little tiny actors. <laughs> Where did they get all these tiny actors from? <laughs> Is this a movie for ants? On <laughs> <laughs> my Apple Watch. <laughs> Oh man! Oh, by the way, so Rod, while he's in college, just for a little bit of extra extra cash here and there, wasn't a porn? <laughs> no, dude. I Stripper. wish it would have been much healthier for him. He worked part time testing parachutes for the United States Army Air Force. How do you test parachutes? He would jump out of planes and pull them and see if they would they would do or not. Would parachute or not. Hey, uh, <laughs> does this parachute? What do you do if they don't work? Uh, you die. You don't make, you don't make <laughs> your thousand bucks. That's you what don't you file do. a report. Yeah, you don't. The report yeah. gets filed for you. Yeah, the report gets filed for you for sure. He packed that parachute himself. We're convinced of it. Definitely. Yeah, he received $50 for each successful jump and that comes out to about like 500 bucks okay basically. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, look, look he was, they ain't bad. He was getting fifty, and at one point uh, they paid him five. Listen, I jump out of a plane for five hundred dollars. Yeah, for sure. And at one point they paid him five hundred bucks back then, which is like five grand. Wow. Uh, and he was gonna get he he got the two hundred and fifty bucks, uh, half of it before he got into the plane, and they gave him another half afterwards. So when he survived, basically, <laughs> like the parachute works. What the fuck? If he's dead, he ain't gonna spend that first two fifty anyways. <laughs> he's go get it out of his pocket. And they're like, what oh, the fuck is the this. point of that? <laughs> They'll be like, we didn't pay him any money until after the thing. There was. <laughs> oh my god! How Dude, dumb! What is that? his last test jump that he did while he was in college testing parachutes? Um, some of the people that worked with him at the radio station all talked about this because they were all telling him not to do this shit. Mm-hmm. His last test jump was a few weeks before his wedding. Uh, and he earned one thousand whole dollars, which is let's be honest. I mean, that's like ten grand. Holy I mean, shit. especially in college, yeah. you know, like this Jesus. man's not fucking around. I'll jump out playing for ten grand. That's gonna pay for the open bar at his wedding. Yeah, he's basically <laughs> 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 that paid for the cigarettes for the wedding. <laughs> I'm gonna need all that money. <laughs> he earned a thousand bucks for testing a jet ejection seat that had <laughs> killed the previous three testers. It was the fourth oh one. My God. Three men died in that. You, you boys sure you got it this time, right? <laughs> oh, you don't have any like knee problems or anything, do you? No, no, I'm fine. Like ignore the metal detector that I walked through going off because there's so much fucking shrapnel in my legs. Uh, It's all shrapnel. It's not a plate. (laughs) An ejection seat, dude, on a jet. (laughs) He was like, yeah, yeah, I got a thousand bucks. (laughs) I got you. You can imagine like he's walking to the jet in his gear and takes a last look at his team members there. And he's like, you know what they say? Four times a charm. (laughs) (laughs) And they're like, no one ever says that. Nobody says that. You must be right, Dev. He must have had a like, you know what? If I die, I don't have to be so angry anymore. He's like, the difference between me and the last three is they want to live. I don't. (laughs) Yes, dude. Jesus Christ. I just imagine like the pilot is just like, all right, Rod, time to jump out. (laughs) Hopefully this is the one, buddy. Yeah. Oh my God. Uh, but yeah, speaking of him, and they're getting... like, "You want to take your backup parachute? Nah, nah, I don't need it." No, look, if the first one doesn't go, I'm likely dead anyway. You know, I'll just, I'll, I'll think sweet, sweet I'm ad- thoughts. Imagine like the seat is connected to a parachute, and it's like gently like floating down towards the ground. And he's just, he's already got a lit cigarette. He's got in a himself. cigarette in his mouth, full suit on. He's like, I f- what can I do? I thought this was the one. It's like, he's like, bad news. The thing works. You goddamn bastards couldn't kill me. Son of he a like bitch. gets on the radio. He's like, God damn it. Son of a bitch. What is it, guy? Motherfucker. They're like, what's wrong? Are you okay? He's like, yes, I'm fine, motherfucker. That's why. God damn it. That's the problem. What does it take for a guy to die around here? <laughs> <laughs> they gave him a thousand bucks, so he paid for his wedding. He paid for the cigarettes and the whiskey at the wedding. Um, <laughs> a part of it, at least. <laughs> the Antioch Broadcasting System radio station was also where he met Carolyn Louise Kramer, or just Carol, a fellow student who later became his wife. He would he married her in college. It was like a whirlwind romance, basically. Cool. They stay married the entire time. Yep. They cool. stay married until his death. Cool. Yeah. It was he was like a cag man. He was a one man. Well, he was a one 
woman man when he got married apparently before that he was doing some work around campus oh cool <laughs> yeah. Sweet. yeah carol actually said she didn't even want to date him because he was like a fucking playboy dude, he was just you know? fucking dude. just fucking, Straight dude. fucking think about it the man was in the pacific yeah. <laughs> yeah. and now he runs the radio station at the college he's yeah. 22 years old ripped ready to go and he's like angry fucking angry you know fuck. what i mean they're not used to guy. they're not used to the rough sex that you get from <laughs> rod serling dude rod serling will pity you i down. mean you can <laughs> The most consensual way possible. Energy. Yeah, he's <laughs> getting hate fucked. Yeah. He smokes cigarettes during <laughs> sex. There is no doubt about it. You're in a face full of smoke when you fuck right, sir. <laughs> you can always pick up the scent of a man who doesn't care about death. <laughs> um, Deb, oh. I wanted to ask you a little bit about this. <laughs> not about fucking not caring about death caring yeah about sure death go fire fucking. away <laughs> yeah. this man definitely rod definitely like ejected out of that fucking jet and just came landing down on the ground it's like all right time to fuck you know? <laughs> um. <laughs> the parachute landed in a girl's room <laughs> hey darling oh my god you wanna, you wanna he did you, do porn you wanna show me your twilight zone <laughs> <laughs> oh man that was good pun. <laughs> <laughs> no, Deb, I wanted to ask you about this church that he joined. <laughs> he joined the Unitarian Church in college what in 1948. I don't know, really. I looked it up, and what I gather is they are Christian, but they don't believe that Jesus was like all the God stuff and Jesus stuff. and they, I don't think they even believe in hell. So they're not Christian, right? <laughs> but like they're called Christian. They just love drinking wine. <laughs> yeah, they're like all the benefits. So this church movement started in the mid 1500s in Transylvania. What? And it was yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't know Those that. Those comes all the way up. around. Right, and then so what? This was a a bunch of Christians started to separate and said that they didn't believe in the Trinity. That they are still Christians, but they thought like Jesus was like a mortal person or inspired and like all this kind of shit. This committee of the church at the time and in the, the whole region convened for this big conference and a student stood up against the idea of the Trinity. And then they all, this is like hundreds of people, they debated about it for nine years. Wow. <laughs> and then they separated and said, all right, fuck you guys. We're going to do our own wow. thing. Uh, so, yeah, then like it, it, it came to like really like spread and flourishing in the 1600s and then slowly started. So it was it's super old, but basically it's and it doesn't just encompass one denomination Christian. It's a term like used for uh, a multiple aspects of different okay. Christian sects. So Unitarian just so, means you're like, yeah, you're a few different th things. There's a Unitarian church. There's a Unitarian Universalist church. But then the term Unitarianism is like something that was used to classify a group of Christians that don't believe in the traditional understanding of the Trinity of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. I see. So okay. that's why. if They're, they're called non Trinitarians, wow. actually. Non-Trinitarians. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That's hilarious. So. Okay, gotcha. Non this week on religion, I'm, history of religion. I'm going to start claiming that. I'm non-Trinitarian. <laughs> they're going to be like, do yeah. you like dudes too, or what? <laughs> <laughs> I mean. <laughs> 
Uh, Until I'm believing three ways. Yeah. I'm not on Trinitarian. <laughs> Only four ways. <laughs> three ways. Only four ways for me, not three ways. Oh, man. Rod was, he was fucking during college. There's just no doubt. How, I would, yeah. man, there's just, I would. Hey, he was an attractive dude, too. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, especially five foot four. He was like the tallest dude on campus, for <laughs> sure, you know. Because people are way shorter back then. <laughs> he and Carol got married uh, at this church, at the Unitarian Church in 1948. And Carol Serling's maternal grandmother, Louise Taft Orton, Jesus Christ, Louise Taft Orton Caldwell, uh, she had a summer home on Cayuga Lake in Interlaken, New York, and that's where they had their honeymoon. And I bring that up because Rod later on named his production company the Cayuga Productions after oh, this lake house. Cool. Yeah. This is like his peaceful place he and carol cool. would go here every year and nice it was kind of like cag had the farm yeah you know like mm-hmm. rod had cayuga lake and i think cool. he would come here to like probably just throw rocks into the lake really hard or something you know <laughs> <laughs> not be so angry all the time uh, also rest in peace to carol man she died last year wow she died in 2020 yeah carol died in january of 2020 uh, she probably knew what was about to happen and decided to get the fuck out, you know, before things really went to shit. And I don't blame her for that. Um, <laughs> and she made the right choice. She made the right choice. Good on you. Good on you, Carol. Rest in peace. How old um, was she? She was, oh, Lord. Had to be in, like, her 90s. Yeah, something like that. I imagine she was about as old as Rod, born in 1920s. So she was, yeah, she was probably in her 90s when wow. she died. Uh, did yeah. she ever remarry? No, she never Wow, nope. holy she shit. She also, she was a one-man woman. He That's was a one-woman man. Crazy. Yeah, they, and yeah, she never remarried. They had two kids together, Jody and Anne, and they're still around. One of them wrote a book that I've got to get about Rod Serling. Um, they were very, like, vocal. Growing up with the angriest man on the planet. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, but again, you know, to them, he wasn't. To them, Rod was just nice dad, you know, and to Carol, Rod was like, Nice husband who's also very, very angry about stuff. Right, like, yeah. Like I said, he was not an yeah. angry Yeah, yeah, like he, didn't, he didn't guy. misplace his anger, no, yeah, which no, is cool. No. Yeah. He, they would probably, Carol was often very angry with him. Yeah. Carol kind of liked his, cool. like, this guy is saying the things that nobody wants to say. Did she ever get any say, or was she ever consulted on any of the future Twilight Zone projects? Or? No. Um, unfortunately, Rod kind of... I'll, yeah, okay, we'll get into way it. later. Okay. Where are we at right now? So he just so got married. He just he's, got married. He just finished college. He's just finishing college. He had this stellar fucking career during college where he ran the radio station. And again, you know, he's, he had been churning out work for radio at this point. He's writing programming for radios in ohio i mean this is going out to actual radio you know waves in ohio and of course you know there was some stuff that he did in new york as well so he built this kind of student radio career by the time he uh he graduates around 1950 and he actually got his first professional writing gig in 1950 earning 75 bucks a week which is like 600 bucks a week basically as a network continuity writer for WLW Radio in Cincinnati, Ohio. As a what writer? What's that? As a what oh, writer? A continuity writer. Continuity writer. What's a continuity writer? I've got a job description for you. The continuity writer originates and prepares material that is read by the announcer 
to introduce and connect various parts of musicals, news, sports programs, whatever kind of program it was. So I guess he was like the last hands that it went to before it went to the guy who was going to put it on the air. Great. Make sure it's angry and dark. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. They would send it for the old Rod. So he made the ad segues. Yeah, yeah. He was like, and that was the doors. That was, oh, if you're in the market for a door, check out Cody's Doors over oh, on Melrose. The doors. <laughs> While at WLW, he continued to freelance as well. He sold several radio and television scripts to WLW's parent company, Crosley Broadcasting Corporation, CBC. He was selling these scripts to them, and this would have been like local television, local radio. He's selling them them scripts. But, you know, I mean, once you sell the script to these people, he had no further involvement with it. Like, he would sell the script and... It's out of his hands now. Yeah, I mean, that's know. the thing. It's like, you know, script writers, you sell a script for, even nowadays, what, like, like if you sell a script for $100,000 that right. a studio is going to flip around and make a couple million dollar movie? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that's kind of what he was dealing with here. I mean, you know, he's a young buck, so it's mm-hmm. fine. He's doing this for now. But, yeah, he would he submitted an idea for a weekly radio show in which the ghost of a young boy and girl killed in World War II would look through train windows and comment on day-to-day human life as it moved around the country. Cool. And, yeah, very cool. Um, unfortunately, they got it and they changed it like significantly. And this was kind of Rod's first, like, uh, the ticking began. <laughs> like, I just hear it in his head. He submits this idea. They love it. They changed it completely. They changed it to where it says that they made it into a drama about a girl and boy who travel by train with their uncle. And it was this whole weird thing. And I can just hear in his head. He's like, <laughs> the ticking. You know, like, oh, these motherfuckers. This isn't Here's my script. My shit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Why'd they even buy it if they were going to change it? They couldn't kill me in that plane. <laughs> now I'll kill them. Um so yeah, other other radio programs for which Serling wrote scripts include Leave It to Kathy, Our America, and Builders of Destiny. Those are like some of the programs that he did, apparently. And again, I cannot find much on them, unfortunately. I'll get back to you. I'll get back. I'll do more research and see if I can find some of these things. During the production of these, he became acquainted with a voice actor named Jay Overholtz. And this guy would become a regular on Twilight Zone later on. Cool. Yeah. Cool. Rod was... Go ahead. Oh no, I was Rod was definitely doing the thing where like he was meeting people that would come up later on in life. Very you know? cool. Yeah. Yeah. So that's so cool. So he like didn't forget about people kind of. Yeah. Yeah. And also at this point he's just writing. He's doing nothing in front of the camera. He's not right. doing any reading of the of the stuff on the radio himself. Like right. it's all writing, right? He's writing, he's giving people ideas. And they're taking them. He even said this. He said, From a writing point of view, radio ate up ideas that might have put food on the table for weeks at a future freelancing date. The minute you tie yourself down to a radio or TV station, you write around the clock. You rip out ideas, many of them irreplaceable. They go on and consequently can never go on again. And you've sold them for $50 a week. You can't afford to give away ideas. They're too damn hard to come by. If I had to do it over, I wouldn't staff write at all. I'd find some other way to support myself while getting a start as a writer. Mm. So he kind of felt like he was burning all of his ideas out on this yeah. bullshit. Getting underpaid for great ideas yeah. that they were going to butcher anyway. Yeah. Now he couldn't use the idea for his own thing down the road. Yep. 
I mean, that's that's a struggle that I feel like a lot of like you know young creatives don't have a lot of power has that I can definitely sympathize with. It's we like can relate. How much do you give for to a machine that you don't own? You absolutely, know? absolutely, and it does suck. I mean, he's not wrong. You know, ideas that are so good sometimes it's one of those things where you mm-hmm. just got. I I mean, I'm sure there were some ideas that he just put in his back pocket. Yeah, he's like, I'm gonna sit on this. I don't know why. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder how many would-be Twilight Zone episodes yeah, there are. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So Lost he mentioned that. that. I mean, he would for, basically what he would do is he would pitch it around. Someone would buy it for 50 bucks a week. Or if they said no, he would just pitch it again, pitch it to other places. Was there ever a Twilight Zone episode where two people were on a train commenting on what they saw? There was a guy on a plane commenting on what he saw in the wing. <laughs> <laughs> i'm sure i'm sure that idea made it into twilight zone absolutely and i i feel bad because i'm a big fan of that show but i mean there's honest, a thousand there's seasons. a thousand seasons and a thousand episodes a lot of them you know i don't i'm not exactly the expert no one's i mean and, and like only the diest of diehards yeah. remember every single episode you know <laughs> oh man yeah and rod said he was also disheartened by radio in general at this point he said Radio, in terms of drama, dug its own grave. It had aimed downward, had become cheap and unbelievable, and had willingly settled for second best. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Which sounds very Rod Serling. Yeah, everything, everything he writes has to be a poem. <laughs> yes, ex- exactly right. Exactly right. Everything he writes has to be a poem, and radio, and subsequently throughout his entire life and career... No one was taking this shit as seriously as he was. Right, you know what I yeah. mean? Like, you're not... wasn't TV seen as like an inferior medium back then? Absolutely. And, too? and he Absolutely. was like, I'm trying to make art, I'm damn trying it. to make fucking art and that you want, speaks to You want to make a cheese commercial? Yeah. I'm trying to make art. <laughs> you are spot on to where this episode is headed. Because this is the, the war with the studios that oh, I talked man. about. was Rod Serling versus every single person that ever hired him and ever worked in broadcasting. You know, like, <laughs> do, do you think he talks in that voice in everyday Oh, life? my God, I hope so. I hope he's at the grocery <laughs> store just like, how much are apples on sale for? You know, like, Can you really sell an apple? <laughs> or are you apple, selling the earth? The apple doesn't belong to me, but I just rent it. I rented like, <laughs> I'd like, like to, so many cameras. I'd like to imagine that everywhere he walks, there's just this cloud of smoke that follows him, <laughs> but it stays with him. It's like he's constantly smoking, but it doesn't spread outside of like his bubble. Like There's like a five-foot radius around him, just like a smoke haze, and it Absolutely. moves with him. Absolutely. Yeah. If you watch the show, that is what's going on. Like Sometimes you can't even see his face through the cigarette smoke. You know, I love that this man smoked his way through an entire series on the air. You, know? like you watch Twilight Zone, and he's just... He's got the cigarette there all the time, you know. (laughs) Frank Sinatra did the same shit. He moved from radio to television as a writer for WKRC-TV in Cincinnati. Okay. Uh, His duties included writing testimonial advertisements for dubious medical remedies. Oh, my God. Wait, he had to write testimonies? Yeah. So they were... (laughs) Exactly. So he got hired to... I took Rodnum, and I'm happy as a clam. (laughs) So he got hired to to write fraud pieces about (laughs) lying about fake medicine. Doctor, feel goods, needles, feel great in me. You know, like, yeah, yeah. It's like... 
amphetamines make me ten times more productive throughout the day. You know, like, yeah, I love meth. Yeah, I love meth. Meth, meth, meth. Down <laughs> in my belly. Yeah, that's what he was writing. Yeah, he was, <laughs> he, was, he was just faking being people that take medicine. Carol from New Jersey. I love meth. <laughs> I love meth. Meth, meth, meth. So he was working... <laughs> He was working at WKRC, and uh, he was right. He also wrote scripts for some like comedy duo that was this Cincinnati, these Cincinnati guys. They were like the Cincinnati local TV comedy guys that he wrote for, and uh, he he continued there for a mit uh, for a bit amidst the most mostly dreary day to day work. Also created a series of scripts for a live television program, The Storm as well as other anthology dramas. Um, and this was like kind of the introduction of this, you know, anthology dramas. This is absolutely where I think Twilight Zone would come from mm-hmm. afterwards. He was already kind of doing something like this. Were anthologies a much more popular form of storytelling back then because they just didn't think people would consistently tune into the same story every absolutely. week? Absolutely, yeah, for okay. sure, for sure. Yeah, it was like... Yeah, a lot of places were, a lot of programming was like this. It was different week to week, but it was kind of the same, but it was different. You know, Mm -hmm. but yeah, the serialized television really had not taken off yet. Yeah, it was either a Monster of the Week type thing, or it was an anthology that was completely unconnected, or it was a comedy that you really didn't have to, like... I love an anthology. I love an anthology. you can just get in and out of. You don't have to, like, fuck, man, I'm trying to catch up with the third season of You... I'm halfway through the damn first. They're, I got 80 hours. Did you guys ever see Room 102? I think it was on HBO. Uh Oh, yeah. I never saw it, but I heard it was real good. good. Yeah, real yeah. good anthology series. Actually, I think I did watch it. Every episode, episode takes place in the same hotel room. Yeah, and we I think we have Twilight Zone to thank for yeah. shows like that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. I think that, that show definitely Black was Mirror like Black Twilight yeah. Zone. Like, Spawned yeah. from Twilight Zone. Yeah. yeah. From Rod's head, from his angry head. The Twilight Zone reboot. You got to thank the Twilight Zone for that. You yeah. Know? yeah, 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 <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, at that point, he was the Apprentice. <laughs> yeah, I think Twilight. Zone. Yeah, yeah. Everything. Deal or No Deal. Deal or No think Deal. Zone. Wheel of Fortune. MTV Cribs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Rod was definitely uh, fighting with like his anthologies would be like butted up against the time slot of like fucking Hollywood Squares or some shit. You know, <laughs> like he was constantly getting the fucking raw end of the deal whenever it mm. came to that shit. Carol had this to say about when Rod started working at television. She said, I think Rod would have been one of the first to say he hit the new industry, television, at exactly the right time. The first job he got out of school was a continuity writer at WLW in Cincinnati. He worked there every year before he could freelance. At that point, he was really working on television scripts. In 1951 and 1952, the new industry was grabbing up a lot of material and needed it fast. Mm. It was a very propitious time to be graduating from school and getting ready to find a profession in television. Cool. And so that's kind of... Content rush. Yeah. Yeah. And that harks back to what you were saying, like, what is the uh, climate like here? Mm -hmm. It is basically the birth of television, and they are just looking for content like crazy you know Mm -hmm. this is the we're kind of in the same thing here you know nowadays with the streaming services we were talking about it's a it's a feeding frenzy you know it's people are just looking for shows and he was trying to get in on that action you know yeah in 1950 serling hired blanche Gaines as an agent his radio scripts received more rejections so he began rewriting them for television 
So oh, okay, he did cool. take some of those reject ideas and try to spin them around for a TV format. And he says whenever a script was rejected by one program, he would just resubmit it to another. I mean, everybody's looking for stuff, you know, and he's just he's doing the grind here. Uh, is, is Carol is Carol working or is she kind of stayed home? Do you have kids yet? Like, you, you know, know the... it's the old Cagney <laughs> treatment here. I don't know. There's not much info on Carol. Not much info on Carol. Um, now, again, I haven't like read the book. You know, I'm sure there's a lot more in the book that his children wrote. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I I know that again. I mean, it was the same thing with Cagney, where like Carol met Rod at a radio station in college that she was also working at. Yeah. You know? So clearly, she had aspirations to work in broadcasting as well. Don't know how that went. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. You know. <laughs> and I'll I'll get back to you. Just okay. like I did on the CAG. Yeah, I'll yeah. get back to you. So as Sterling's college years ended, his scripts began to sell, basically. I'm just his scripts started to sell finally. He continued to write for television, but he left WKRC to become a full time freelance writer. Writing is a demanding profession and a selfish one. And because it is selfish and demanding, because it is compulsive and exacting, I didn't embrace it. I succumbed to it. <laughs> Ooh, dude, everything's dude right. This is like I, I like I, the very, very Hunter S. Thompson esque yeah, style absolutely. in his in his writing. Like yeah. it's really cool. Yeah. He is just the vessel, man. Yeah, he is just the vessel. Like the the words flow through Rod. <laughs> words you know? flow through. His name is Rod. He was a lightning rod for ideas. Whoa, dude. Yeah. Was his was his name actually Rod or was it short for something? No, no, it was Rod. This, was Rod. That, this man did not change his name dude, for the stage. Dude, like, there is not enough human beings named Rod. Rod's I a cool know, name. Man. Rod. Rod. It's me, Rod. Rod. I just jumped out of that jet up there raw dude (laughs) (laughs) yeah you think it would be short for you know rodney yeah nope (laughs) just rod just rod dude it's way cooler (laughs) way cooler yeah according to his wife serling just up and quit one day during the winter of 1952 about six months before our first daughter jody was born though he he was also doing some freelancing and working on a weekly dramatic show for another Cincinnati station. He and his family moved to Connecticut in early 1953, where he made a living by writing for the live dramatic anthology shows that were prevalent at the time. Ah, yeah, yeah okay, cool. Including craft television theater. Oh my god, explain. <laughs> explain. He did craft television theater. He did one called Appointment with Adventure and one called Hallmark Hall of Fame. So, corporate blocks of television. So, what I imagine this is akin to is in the early days of video games like the Atari days, there were so many like shameless tie-ins yeah. with like products and stuff. <laughs> like uh yes. there's I think there's one famous mcdonald's game called like the mckids or something yeah. and it's like legitimately like a good game but it's like it's a, it's a mcdonald's ad you exactly. know so yeah. imagine this is that like yeah, this is like they yeah. can be good stories as long as they revolve around yes. people loving craft cheese it, it <laughs> brings me back to like the christmas story like the it what i mean it, i don't think it was oval teen but it was basically oval teen the shit that he kept trying to get the the winning piece out of or whatever. And he finally like solved the puzzle cause he bought enough of that shit. And it turned out just to be an ad <laughs> for Ovaltine. You know, it was like, okay. that, that was definitely the time where product placement was being, I would love to see one of those craft hours. Yeah. Yeah. We, what's yeah. this called? I wonder if I can track it down on YouTube right craft now. Craft television theater. 
By the end of 1954, his agent convinced him to move to New York, where the action is. So in 1955, the Nationwide Craft Television Theater televised a program based on... Serling had written them a 70-second script. It was titled Patterns. And Kraft, that night, in 1955, they were going to air his his episode that he wrote, basically. He's like, he's making it. Um, and yeah, it was brought to you by Cheese, you know. And <laughs> <laughs> Rod thought it was no big deal. He didn't give a shit. He, I got the Cheese show. I don't care. Mm-hmm. Whatever. Nobody's going to watch this shit. Uh, he hired a babysitter that night for the night. He and Carol were going to, like, go catch a movie. Like, he's like, I don't fucking care. <laughs> the babysitter even was like, you don't want to just stay and, like, watch your thing? He's like, nah, it's cheese TV. You know, I don't care. <laughs> it's cheese TV. I didn't really ever try. Yeah. And he even told, he told the babysitter, and don't worry, nobody's going to call. We're new in town. We mm-hmm. just got to New York. We're a bunch of Ohio bumpkins. Yeah. You know, the phone's not even going to ring. Uh-huh. Just sit there and watch the kids. We're going to go watch a movie. Mm-hmm. Well, she did sit down and watch it. Uh-huh. And she said it was, like, amazing. You know, <laughs> like, she was like, who the fuck is this guy that I'm babysitting for? This man is incredible. <laughs> like, his writing is awesome. The cheese show. The cheese show. This man has outdone himself on the cheese show, you know. <laughs> and, again, she couldn't believe that he didn't even want to watch his shit. So, but she watched it and she said, like, 30 minutes after this thing went off the air, if not, if even mm. that long, the phone, the phone is... blows the fuck up. <laughs> does not stop ringing. And Rod Serling said, it started ringing after that cheese show. <laughs> Never stopped ringing his whole life. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. So he's just sitting at home yeah. on the on his armchair with a glass of whiskey as the phone is just ringing and it won't stop. Just and he is PTSD. Just, he is just shaking. It's <laughs> like, leave me alone. Absolutely ripped that thing out of the wall and like threw it across the room a few times there's no doubt it's like stop wanting me stop wanting to hire me it's just cheese Jeez, it's just cheese you people what are you doing here uh, yeah uh, by the way patterns uh the craft theater patterns it dramatized the power struggle between a veteran corporate boss uh running out of ideas and energy and his bright new young executive being groomed to take his place basically and it says instead of firing the loyal employee and risk tarnishing his own reputation the boss enlists him into a campaign to push aside his competition so serling and apparently serling modeled the main character on his former commander colonel orrin hagen the guy who led them into battle he like base this character off of him and everything he was already writing like what he knew you know mm. for sure and this thing was gangbusters um a new york times critic jack gould he called the show the episode one of the high points in the tv medium's evolution wow he said for sheer power of narrative forcefulness of characterization and brilliant climax mr serling's work is a creative triumph uh, Robert Lewis stated in a Saturday review, In the years I have been watching television, I do not recall being so engaged by a drama, nor so stimulated to challenge the haunting conclusion of an hour's entertainment. So this thing was a hit. This thing went nuts. Everyone loved the cheese show. <laughs> and a second live a second live show was staged by popular demand one month later. So they... Oh yeah, put they this really, thing on they didn't really stage. Do reruns. Right, no, no okay. reruns. So they would, they took it and put it on 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 stage. Wow, like, as a play. Wow, yeah. 
So at this point, he's like a playwright as well, you know. And during the time between the two shows, Crab... I would love to see this. I would love to oh, watch this. I know. Yeah. we got to track it down. Yeah, we got to track it down. Patterns by Rod Serling on the Craft Show. <laughs> <laughs> on the Cheese Show? On the Cheese Show. Craft <laughs> executives negotiated with people from Hollywood over the rights to Patterns. They're, now they're fighting over it. <laughs> now they're fighting over it. Kraft said they were considering rebroadcasting Patterns unless the player motion picture rights were sold first. And so, yeah, we're talking about reruns now. We're talking about, like, actual reruns. They want to reshow this thing. It was a huge thing. we got to bring it back. Everyone wants patterns again, you know. Immediately following the original broadcast of Patterns, Serling was inundated with offers of permanent jobs, uh, congratulations, people were requesting novels from him, plays, television, radio scripts. The phone's ringing off the hook. Everybody wants him to write something for them. And he quickly sold many of his earlier lower-quality works that got rejected, Mm -hmm. and he basically watched in horror as these things were actually made because they would just (laughs) take them and turn them into, like, the craft singles program. Oh, so even though they... Even though they wanted his work, they still felt the need to alter it? Yeah, he was like this. Yeah, exactly. And apparently, when he wrote Patterns, he became this overnight sensation, but also... I think they still were kind of like, well, you still don't know what you're doing. You're still like Weird. this new writer, you know. Just, was was patterns changed a lot from what he wrote, or I I don't know actually. Actually, that's a good question. I don't know. I don't know how close to his script patterns was, but uh, basically everybody wants him to recreate patterns. Everybody's like mm-hmm. pushing him to like recreate this thing. Same happened with Orson Welles, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, again, I talk about this all the time. But like Citizen Kane, he made it so young. And everyone wanted him to do it again, you know, yeah. and you just kind of don't sometimes, yeah. <laughs> you, know? yeah. you just kind of don't. Not everyone, not everyone can do it twice. Uh, yeah. Not to say, not to disregard his entire body of work. Right. I mean, Serling clearly did. Yeah, Serling yeah, went yeah. on to make a little show called The Twilight Zone. <laughs> but, you know, he didn't know at the time. He didn't know if Patterns was like, this is it. You know, that was the best thing I ever wrote. Yeah, it was the cheese show. Got put on the cheese show, and that, that was it. That was it for old Rod. You know, <laughs> time to go back and jump out of some more airplanes. Until the grandkids about the cheese show. <laughs> uh, but he did. He wrote another thing that was huge. He wrote Requiem for a Heavyweight for the television series called Playhouse ninety in nineteen fifty six. And Playhouse 90 was also like an anthology show. Okay, cool. Yeah, you're right, man. They were doing this a lot. They were doing a lot of not serialized anthologies back in these days. Um, And Playhouse 90 was one of the big ones, too. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, he wrote this huge episode from them again. Everyone's like, he's done it again. Everyone, you know, the critics are happy. Mm -hmm. He did it. He did the recommend for a heavyweight as the next patterns, you know. Uh, this is in 1957 in autumn. That's when they moved to California after all this. Now he's like, uh, he's a writer, you know. I mean, he's writing for TV. He wants to go where the TV is. So they moved to California. <laughs> <laughs> when television was new, shows aired live. But as studios began to tape their shows, the business moved from the East Coast to the West Coast. That's so weird that they shot it live. Live TV. That's so weird. Yeah, man. Uh, I highly recommend going to watch Frank Sinatra's show back I, in the fifties. I guess it kind of goes be- yes. because of like, bef- like I. Well, we do plays live, so why don't we just put a camera on the play? Right. Yeah. And I guess that was the logic. Exactly. Although, like, it seems like the the. 
technology to live stream would have not existed back then. Yeah. I guess the news was doing it. Yeah, and I guess that's not true. I the guess news the news was doing it. But I'm no, look, I'm with you. I I'm a World War II 1940s geek, but also I still am sometimes shocked at the technology that they actually had available. You know, mm. it was very interesting. I mean, that's one of the most mystifying things about this time period is you had almost the level of technology that we have now, but it was just rudimentary, you mm-hmm. know. But yeah, you could do live broadcasting. Yeah, so in the autumn of 1957, uh, Rod and Carol and his family, they followed the uh, the West Coast movement of television. You know, like I was saying, I mean, this it moved from the East Coast to West Coast when they started taping these shows, and it wasn't just live anymore. L.A. was kind of the place to be for that. This Requiem for a Heavyweight thing that he had done in 1956 for Playhouse 90 was also kind of one of the first times where he really experienced having to work around a corporate structure while writing television. It wasn't a big thing, mm. but to him, it was a big change that like they the, made. The shackles were on. Yeah, the shackles were on, man. And the change that they made was uh, there's a line in the show, and he had written, got a match, but they changed it to... Uh, got a light because they were sponsored by Ronson lighters as well, and they uh, didn't want and they didn't want to match, yeah. you know, competing with the corporate yeah. guys. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but to Rod, this was like, "Fuck you, man! I wrote got a match. I didn't write <laughs> got a lighter." Oh man, know? come on, Rod, this is a small change. <laughs> it's not, and this you'll see. Okay, <laughs> small changes were a big deal to old Rod. That's for sure. <laughs> Well, that's um, that's interesting because they still do this today. Like, yeah. Um, I was taking a, the backlot tour of Warner Brothers. Obviously, Big Bang Theory is the most popular thing ever created on yeah. the planet Earth, and so they were showing us different backlots, and they brought us to the backlot of Big Bang Theory, and they're kind of going us through the process of creating a weekly show and everything like that because they they record like you know a pretty fast pace, and they said, and at this stage, or like sponsors will come in and review the episode. Right. And make any changes yep. to the script that they need to make. Yep. And someone was like, what kind of changes do the sponsors make? She was like, nothing big, but let's say that the gang gets has a pizza night and they get really sick from the pizza. Well, if one of our sponsors that week is Domino's, right. then we might change it to they got really sick off hamburgers. Hot because we don't right. want to make people feel like they're going to get sick off the products that we're sponsoring. I was like, oh, that's so fascinating. I never thought about that. Yeah. How like tiny little changes, even if it's not blatant advertising for Domino's, the sponsor still comes yep. in and makes little tweaks little to the script. Tweak. Could you imagine, like, they just cut, end a scene where they're all just puking from eating pizza, <laughs> and then it's like, <clears throat> order Domino's, <laughs> you know, from your it's local like, delivery. Suddenly I want some pepperoni, you know. <laughs> yeah, no, this goes back to all the way. The early years of television often saw sponsors working as editors and censors. And uh, Serling was often forced to change his scripts after corporate sponsors read them and found something that felt was too controversial. (laughs) So that was the other part. It might not even be, it might be a thing where it has nothing to do with the product. They just feel like it's a little too heavy. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) A little too heavy handed for the craft singles out. (laughs) (laughs) This might be a little too existential. Listen. Rod, we we know you're dealing with some working through some past <laughs> issues, but we can't have a man decapitated on craft TV. <laughs> Why not? Hour. God damn it! It's real life. <laughs> That's what happens in the real world, not your not your cheese factory. Maybe this doesn't happen in your cheese factory, but it happens to us. <laughs> you goddamn bastards! They're like uh, Rod. You have written here. 
a man is telling a comedy joke and then he gets decapitated yeah. by a falling box. Yeah, that's what happens. <laughs> that's what happens in real life. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe uh, Ronson lighters. You know, no one got decapitated there, but it happens. <laughs> Rod, falling boxes are a myth. They're not a myth. I've seen them. Speaking of corporate sponsors, we're going to go to one of ours right now. This episode is brought to you by Anchor. I didn't realize how much this was going to dip into like the dawn of television either, but it does. I, there was a whole chunk where I wrote, Sterling began his career when television was a new medium. The first public viewing of an all-electronic television was presented by inventor Philo Farnsworth at the Franklin Institute in Philadelphia on August 25th, 1934, when Serling was nine years old. Uh, commercial television officially started on July 1st, 1941. Wow. That is the first year that TV was made for the public. What were the first television broadcasts? It says it was mainly about the war. Uh, okay. World War II was... So it was, was the news, basically. It was the news. It was what was going on in the war. Because before this and during this, you'd go to the theaters, and they would usually roll stuff about what was going on overseas. But they brought this to like the TV set. But even at the time... There were fewer than 7,000 TVs in the U.S. Yeah. <laughs> 7,000 well, television sets. You remember that joke from Back to the Future where he's like, oh, man, we got two TVs. And the dad's like, he's lying. No one's got no two No one's TVs. got two TVs. There's hardly two TVs in existence. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There were fewer than 7,000 television sets in the U.S. in 1941, and very few of those were in private homes. Yeah. And uh, only five months later. This is like this is like what VR headsets were for a while. Exactly. Like, no one's got that. Thing. Yeah. Yeah, and they're way expensive. Like, Why would you need two of them? Yeah, and... <laughs> Like huge, you know, like yeah, yeah. Oh, that's the thing. TVs were massive yeah, back then. Yeah, massive. They? they were massive, but the screen was minuscopic. Exactly, it was like a yeah. twelve-inch screen on a massive TV. <laughs> a Twenty-foot piece of wood <laughs> with like a bunch of like very dangerous gadgets and gizmos behind it. Only five months after that, after the July, the first commercial television. Five months after that, the U.S. would enter World War II. And the television business was put on hold until the war's end, basically. Oh, and it was wow. all dedicated to dude, war stuff. Dude, exclusive, yeah. dude. The PS5 status. Yeah. Dude, you me. got a TV? These, <laughs> no, I can't even find these, dude. Many, uh, Not only could you not find them, many of them were confiscated by the government and repurposed to train air raid wardens. So they were also, the government was coming in and taking those TVs. Like, we need these. Is that legal? I'm, at the time. Imagine imagine if a military man came knocking my door and be like, I need this <laughs> I need PS5. I need this PS5 for science. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, what do you mean? I need this TV. And uh, <laughs> yeah, no. And that was that was definitely a big thing in World War II. You were donating a lot of stuff from your house to the <laughs> effort, you know, including your TV. Willingly or unwillingly. I mean, it just depended. It depended on whether or not you were going to get rid of give it to them or if they had to take it, you know. <laughs> you were either willing or uh, they would make you willing. You know? <laughs> Was there any compensation they like pay? Even just like, oh, no, you got freedom. Here's a nickel. You got freedom. You got freedom. <laughs> you didn't become a Nazi. <laughs> that was your payment. You Not know? even a nickel. Yeah. <laughs> So after World War II ended is when the money really started flowing towards television. Mm -hmm. And this would kind of coincide with the beginning of Serling's career. He really rode this wave of like post-World War II television, commercial television. Um, early programming consisted of newsreels, sporting events, and what would be called public access television today. It was not until 1948 
that film dramas were first shown, beginning with a show called Public Prosecutor, which sounds awesome. That's like the very first TV show, Public Prosecutor. Really? Mm-hmm. I mean, what's that show about? The first film drama. I guess it was probably a court thing. <laughs> sounds like to me. Oh, they were real it was into law court and order. stuff. <laughs> law, law and order. Law and order's been going on since the dawn of television. Law and order, World War II. <laughs> law and order, the, the child sex unit. Why is that a television series? <laughs> yeah, man. He uh, Rod Serling is actually given credit as one of the first to write scripts specifically for television wow. as well. Yeah, as early as 1950. Um, yeah, he, he is said to have helped legitimize television drama. Wow. Yeah, back Very in those cool. days, man. The Hideo Kojima of his day. Yeah. And as soon as it began... Rod was already a little worried that it was like, eh, well, it's not as good as it could be. <laughs> it's, it's headed in the wrong direction. <laughs> like, the very first television show comes out, and he's like, eh, it used to be better. You know, like, <laughs> this could be better. <laughs> oh, man. He encouraged sponsors to see television as a platform for the kind of dramatic entertainment that could address important social matters through subtle meanings instead of being an animated billboard is what he called it. So, I mean, I guess he's not wrong. You know, yeah. he saw these corporate people starting to take over, and he said, here's this medium that we have that we could actually push um, an agenda, to be honest. Yeah, you know? like we're I mean, in people's homes. Yeah. That's like, you know, it's, it's like we, you know, movies are one thing, but it's like to invite something into your home every week, you know, right. and like actually like push the message. It's like, you know, uh, this thing thing of sitcoms. It's like people feel like those are their, part of their family. Like this part, of, you know, yeah. it's in your ear. That's why podcasts, I think, are so um, influential to a lot of people is because it's like if you hear someone's voice every day, sure. you start just like, yeah, whatever this man says. Too bad Rod Sterling didn't live to see what television became. Oh, my God. Because he would, he would probably, love, he would love you what, think TV, so? what TV is now that with is HBO. That's true. Yeah, you're right. Like, I agree. I, I think feel I like we're just now achieving thought. his dream of what TV, TV could have been. That is very very true. I actually wrote in here that I wish I could see Rod Serling do the Twilight Zone now. Yeah. Like with no handcuffs on. Yeah. Like what was what was cut from that show mm-hmm. that would blow our fucking minds? Yeah. You know. Yeah. Uh, and at the time, the format of writing for television was changing rapidly in these years. Uh, eventually, it settled into a pattern of commercial breaks on each quarter hour. So. Writers were forced to work these breaks into their scripts. Ah. And Serling, of course, was pissed about this. <laughs> he was not happy. He said, How can you put out a meaningful drama when every 15 minutes proceedings are interrupted by 12 dancing rabbits with toilet paper? No dramatic art form should be dictated and controlled by men whose training and instincts are cut of an entirely different cloth. The fact remains that these gentlemen sell consumer goods, not an art form. Wow. (laughs) And you know what? Rod was right. Yeah. There is nothing fucking worse. One thing that he would be very happy to see is that we have basically broken away. We have all yeah. but broken away from commercial breaks. Yeah, yeah. And there is nothing that kills a dramatic television or immersion or, uh, God forbid, yeah. a fucking movie yeah. gets interrupted by commercials these days. Yeah. It is, it's gone. You're taken out yeah. of it. You're watching... Breaking Bad, mm-hmm. and it, and this was a thing. Breaking yeah. Bad would cut to a commercial of yeah. fucking Pantene Pro V, and it was yeah. like it's so hard to it's like I'm now I'm out of the drama. now I'm out of now the drama. Tension's gone. Yeah, yeah. 
No, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. He never, he didn't live long enough to see his dream achieve. <laughs> like, HBO is his dream. Like, yeah, HBO is this man's dream. <laughs> absolutely. Man, bring him back. Let's bring, let's bring him, him back. back. Let's bring him back. Dev, I know you know some guys who do necromancy. Let's, Come hit, on. Up the, let's hit up that vampire church he was in and see if they, can, <laughs> see if they ought to bring him back. The Egyptian Book of the Dead, baby. <laughs> I'm sure he wrote an episode about that. You know, the Necronomicon. <laughs> the ne- it's probably cut by Kraft. <laughs> like fucking, like, like devil worship. It doesn't fit on brand. <laughs> yeah, Camel cigarettes was like, no, no, no. Let's not do that. Uh, <laughs> so he wrote a teleplay in 1956, or you know, he just he wrote a television script. Um, it was called Noon on Doomsday, and it was set in the southern United States, and it was set in the South. Uh, about the lynching of a Jewish pawnbroker. However, when Serling mentioned in a radio interview that it was inspired by the events and racism that led to the murder of Emmett Till, censorship by advertisers and the TV network resulted in significant changes in the script. Mm. Yeah, they did not want this thing. The program, as shown, was set in New England and concerned concern the killing of an unknown foreigner. And he's, he subsequently returned to the Till events from writing A Town Has Turned to Dust for Playhouse 90, but even then they had to set it a century in the past, and they removed all racist, racial dynamics, basically, in this mm. thing. But this was also, like, he's trying to make this statement about Emmett Till, and clearly also about the Holocaust. He himself mm-hmm. is Jewish, you know, and they were like, that's too heavy. Too heavy, man. Uh, Kraft doesn't want it, you know. <laughs> yeah, um, uh, nothing really changes too much. No. Um, I remember, like, something I find really frustrating is things that pretend to take a stand, but don't really. Right. Um, there's, uh, like, the Far Cry franchise, uh, video game franchise, bugs the shit out of me. The new one? All of them. Really? Every single one, they pretend that they're going to be about something, right. but then they never go there. Right. You know, like, Far Cry 5 especially. Like, you know, like, I was like, yeah, like, Far Cry 5 was set up to be this whole thing, like, you know, with a, a political statement and, like, a re- taking a stand on, like, uh, you know, extremist religions and stuff like that, and they didn't. Right. They just, right. they pussyfoot around it, and even the director was like, Far Cry is a franchise that... You you tell a friend at a bar, yeah, and it was like that's then then why are you making it? Then why are you giving all the aesthetics of like something that makes a stand about some or has any kind of political statement? And, and that's that shit that Rod Serling rolls over in his grave for. Yeah. I mean, Rod really mm-hmm. believed that all this shit should mean something. Yeah, like, exactly. If we're gonna put yeah. something on television, if we're gonna it, all yeah, it, it is either. Just content for entertainment yeah. that means nothing, or it you leave yeah. with your mind changed about yeah. something. Yeah, so I, I really enjoy uh, DC stuff, and I'll consume a variety of uh, a variety of content that varies in quality, right? Mm-hmm. Because I just enjoy those characters. And I remember there was this one episode of the show Arrow where. It was this episode was about gun violence, right. but it never made any sort of stand one way or the other. I remember at one hand, at the end of the episode, McQueen was like, he's the mayor in the season. And he's like, look, guys, we need we have to understand that gun violence is a problem, but also people have their rights. <laughs> and somewhere in the middle 
we'll have an answer. Oh and then it God. rolled credits. And it was like, make a statement yeah. one way or the other. Yeah. Either be pro or against. But you just like, guns were a hot topic. You felt like you had to write an episode that addressed the issue because, you're, uh, because your show revolves around a vigilante like maiming people. Right. That's your hero. So yeah. you're like, oh, we have to address like righteous violence. <laughs> but we don't want to. But we're not going to make a stand yeah. on this. And don't write the, the NRA, fucking... the NRA gave us money last Then week. don't write the fucking episode. Yeah, like, just don't do an episode about this. It's like, it's like <laughs> we should have guns, but we shouldn't have guns. Uh-huh, That's yeah. the message. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. It's like, okay, um, I guess, it, was this all for not? <laughs> was... What did I watch this for? <laughs> I walked out more angry, but I didn't yeah. walk out my mind changed one yeah. way or the other. Like... Yeah, no, it's interesting, too. The The New York Times reviewer, uh, that Gould guy who... who who did uh, patterns, you know, help, mm. helped really signal boost patterns mm. for Rod. He also weighed in on uh, Town as a Turn to Dust. He said, he added this glowing review, a show about racism and bigotry in a small southwestern town. Playhouse 90 and Mr. Serling had to fight executive interference before getting their play on the air last night. So people could see it. People cool. could see that this man's trying to make a statement, mm-hmm. but we all know that he's had the shackles on. You yeah. Know? Okay. And they're cool. they're pulling his reins. Um, it's a, he said, the theater people of Hollywood have reason to be proud of their stand in the viewer's behalf. And people, so people were wanting it. People yeah. wanted Rod to put his stuff out there. And I mean, I imagine after Patterns, they wanted to see what else he had to say. And now people are kind of witnessing what television is becoming. And it's becoming this corporate churner, you know, already. Already, I was going to say already, like so early. What's cool is like it kind of, everything kind of goes in cycles. Like I feel like we kind of have moved away from that. Like TV is riskier than it ever has been before. It's more in the artist's hands. It's less like, you know, gloves off. I mean, but also another thing too is like, and this is entertainment in general, HBO wasn't ad supported. That's right. why they could be riskier. Yeah, for sure. And that's why like Netflix and stuff can be riskier because it doesn't rely on making advertisers happy. Right. The people pay for what they want to see yeah. and like people vote with their money. Just like this. Just like this like, just like this podcast. <laughs> just like this podcast. <laughs> but, it's up to you guys what we say. Yeah. So and that's kinda like that's that's Rod's perfect world. Is it's like if Patreon existed back then, Rod would be doing great. <laughs> well, he had kind of a last straw happen to him. Um I don't know exactly which script this happened in. But they removed a reference to the Chrysler building from one of his scripts because it was sponsored by Ford. So they <laughs> That's didn't want. That's hilarious. <laughs> and this is the time where he basically was like, okay, fuck this shit. <laughs> he decided that the only way to avoid such artistic interference was to create his own goddamn show. And in an interview with Mike Wallace, he said, I don't want to fight anymore. I don't want to have to battle sponsors and agencies. I don't want to have to push for something that I want and have to settle for second best. I don't want to have to compromise all the goddamn time, which is, in essence, what television writer does if he wants to put on controversial themes. So he's pissed. He's done. He's done with the corporate shit. Clearly, he did not fit in this structure. Yeah. You know, there are plenty of writers out there that were just fine writing for Ford mm-hmm. and writing for Kraft. Yeah. And Serling just wasn't one of them, you know? Yeah. He submitted a script to CBS called The Time Element, intending it to be a pilot for his new weekly show, The Twilight Zone. Hell yes. Hell yeah. Wait, say that one more time. 
Serling submitted a script called The Time Element to CBS, intending for it to be a pilot for his new weekly show, The Twilight Zone. Okay, the reason I ask you, the reason I ask you to repeat that is like, so he's still submitting it to CBS. Yeah, like it's still a corporate thing. Yeah. I guess it's just like he's just not working for the craft guys anymore. Exactly. Like that's it. Like right, that's different. Somehow? I guess he thinks if he brings it to CBS himself, CVS, <laughs> if he brings yeah. it to the pharmacy, <laughs> he's just bringing scripts. Well, to he's the probably pharmacy. just gonna try to just have that negotiated up front. You know? Yeah, yeah for sure. Like true. who's gonna sponsor this shit? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, I yeah. actually don't know who sponsored the Twilight Zone. It was somebody cool, I imagine, because yeah. they did let like did, a lot of stuff. Did go. the Twilight Zone do commercial breaks? Yeah, yeah. Had to have, or I forget. I mean, the, wait, was the Twilight Zone? Were the episodes like two stories in one episode? No, it was usually one story, and it usually in the beginning it was thirty minute format. Uh, one season they did a one hour format, but then okay. they went back to the thirty minute the season after that. Because I was thinking if it, if it's a two story format, then the, the dad just comes in the middle between the stories, and it doesn't like interrupt. Right. Yeah, they did. They they had commercials. Oh, okay. Yeah. She still couldn't shake that. Um, nope. Nope, nope, nope. Uh, gotta pay the bills, bro. Gotta pay them bills. He submits this script, the time element. CBS likes it, but they don't really want... Um, they don't want the Twilight Zone. They just want this one episode. They produced it with Desi Arnaz and Lucille Ball. <laughs> or oh, wow. Westinghouse Desilu Playhouse in 1958. So... Ricky and Lucy made this episode. <laughs> <laughs> they were like, hand it to them. They made the episode. Uh, the story concerns a man who has vivid nightmares of the attack on Pearl Harbor. <laughs> Sounds very Rod Serling. You can just see, like, Lucy's like, <laughs> Ricky, to Pearl Harbor. You know, Ricky's like, Lucy, you got a lot of explaining to do on why they bombed our soil. You know, like. <laughs> Lucy, you've got a lot of explaining to do oh for the god. Nazis. The man goes to a... Lucy, the Nazi, the Japanese are here. What did you do? <laughs> oh, oh, I had no season of planes. She's just crying while bombs are going down around them. She bombed Pearl Harbor. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> you know... Uh, the man goes to a psychiatrist, and after the session, spoiler alert for this, by the way, sorry, if you ever want to watch Lucy and Ricky do a Pearl Harbor drama, uh, the twist ending, <laughs> which Serling would, you know, he would become known for, reveals that the patient had died at Pearl Harbor, and the psychiatrist was the, only, was the one actually having the dream about the guy. Whoa. So... This episode went gangbusters again. Rod hits another home run. Like, this man can do no wrong. This man goes from the cheese show to Lucy, and he is just hitting it fucking out of the park. It received so much positive fan response that CBS agreed to let Serling go ahead with the pilot for the Twilight Zone. Whoa, dude, that's cool. What a, what a great... Like, I love that this man's career is just... Him constantly proving he's the best at this. He's constantly proving he's the best. Like, he's constantly being Undeniable censored. talent. Absolutely. Everything he puts out is like, fuck, he they is want, really good. They want to stop him, but they yes. can't. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, he's like 
it's interesting that he said that earlier about like I don't embrace writing, I just succumb to it. <laughs> Where it's like even he was like, I don't know the beast that lives within, man. It just writes and people fucking love it. And then there's a bunch of people for some reason who don't want me to do it. <laughs> or they it's want me to do it good. how it's too good. They want me to do it how they want me to do it. So for Twilight Zone. <laughs> Serling drew in his own experiences for many episodes, frequently about boxing, military life, and airplane pilots. Yeah, by the way, he was another guy who boxed. Sorry. Oh, my God. I I don't even put it in anymore. (laughs) Just assume that every man that I talk about in this time period was a boxer. I'm so sorry. My bad. You were born... On or before 1950. (laughs) (laughs) You either were a boxer or you boxed. Those are your two options. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he he also boxed. You know, I mean, of course he did. I imagine. Boxed or tap dance in a Volvo. (laughs) Or both. Cagney just, yeah, Cagney set off this whole era of man you know you were a, a tap dancing boxer that's what <laughs> Every everyone one wants. of them <laughs> all of them all the 12 dancing rabbit bastards <laughs> all, were all the boxers. 12 dancing boxing rabbits <laughs> toilet paper uh the oh, twilight man. zone incorporated incorporated <laughs> his social views <laughs> incorporated his social views on racial relations somewhat veiled in the science fiction and fantasy elements of the shows um this is one of my earliest um, revelations about Rod Rod Serling. This was when I became a big fan. I mean, this must have been 20 years ago when I was a kid. But I was watching it, and this man was making television about race relations in a time where race relations were still very bad. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, the civil rights movement had not happened yet, and mm. this man was making television about it. I yeah. can't believe... Any of that shit got past anyone, to be honest. This, mm. I think that's one of the reasons why he had to break away from corporate sponsorships. Yeah, you, know? you don't think it's like a little bit odd that the only way you could get a talk about race and, and controversial shit on TV is by calling the show The Twilight Zone? Right, like imagine in a, in, in a world. <laughs> in a world. In a, this is a not world. reality, so yeah. you don't have to be terrified, audience. Right. You know, scared yeah, well, fucking gonna, white homemaker. I was, yeah, I was exactly. Say, do you think the reason he got away with it is because since it was veiled in a little bit of science fiction, there was a lot of suits that just didn't get it. They just like went right over their head. Right, yeah, for sure. Definitely. Like the kids Absolutely. got it because they're like, they're like, oh. He's woke. Yeah. He was woke. But the suits were just like, it's a fun sci-fi yeah, story. Know. I see no correlation <laughs> to current events. I don't know. Play the 12 Dancing Rabbits. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, occasionally the point was quite blunt, too. One of my favorite episodes in the episode I Am the Night, Color Me Black, was an episode of Twilight Zone uh, in which a hatred caused a dark cloud to form in a small town in the American Midwest and spread across the world. So these people's hate literally manifested into a storm, you know, in this episode. And it was called... It's Ghostbusters 2. It's Ghostbusters 2. <laughs> and it was called Color Me Black. You know, he was holding no punches here. He really, like I said, I would love to see what this man made on Patreon. One of, one of my favorite episodes was, um, I don't remember the name of it, but uh, the the woman who wants the plastic surgery to look beautiful. Oh, yeah, yeah. The Eye of the Beholder. Yeah. Oh, so good, man. So good. It's, it's terrifying. And also, it's like a really great commentary on you know beauty standards beauty and stuff standards. like it's really Absolutely. cool and again like if you don't dig too much into it it's still a fun horror story yeah. you know like yeah that's the thing i think that's what's important is if like if you're gonna make 
a social stand, it's important to veil it in entertainment still. Yeah. Like, and Rod Sterling understood that. It was like, in order to convince people, they need to first be entertained. There was a guy who Rod watched on the news all the time named Westbrook Van Voorhis. Uh, full name, Cornelius Westbrook Van Voorhis. And he was known as the voice of doom. <laughs> so, of course, Rod was like, Whoa. this is the guy, you know. Um, and he did a few tests with CBS, and they thought he just sounded a little bit too pompous, in their opinion. He just didn't quite have the same mm -hmm. tone to it. And so Rod Serling basically said literally, like, well, God damn it, if you don't want this guy, then I'm just going to fucking do it. <laughs> they were all kind of like, okay, Rod, calm down. And he's like, no, turn on the fucking cameras. I'm going to do this. <laughs> and so literally, they went live, turned on the cameras, and started filming him. And he did the intro himself, his goddamn self. And they were like, okay, maybe this guy is surly enough to fucking do this show. You know? um, is that the only time he was ever in front of the camera? Yeah, this wow. was the first time ever. Yeah, and did he ever do any acting roles after this? No, not really. He d he did more stuff like this. Okay, he did a he did a show called Night Gallery, uh, where he again would step in front and be like the narrator. Okay, you know? cool. But um, yeah, they gave it. They eventually they wound up giving it to him. It was funny because they said uh they put him in front of the camera, and his first read he said, "There's a sixth dimension beyond that which is known to man." And the producer, William Self, said, uh, hey, you said sixth dimension. What's the fifth one? And Rod said, I don't know. Aren't there five? I can only think of four. <laughs> so they had to re-record it. So we almost had uh, in a sixth dimension instead of in a fifth. He was in a constant fight. Uh, Twilight Zone was known as like a battleground with the network. <laughs> he was constantly fighting for creative control. He hired scriptwriters he respected, such as Richard Matheson, who wrote a lot of the episodes, and Charles Beaumont was another guy who wrote. Um, in an interview, Serling said the show's science fiction format would not be controversial. With sponsors, network executives, or the general public uh, could escape censorship. Unlike the earlier script for Playhouse 90, he's still pissed about that. He's still <laughs> pissed about his script for Playhouse 90 being edited. I swear to God it was a fucking like, match instead of a lighter or whatever. A lighter <laughs> instead of a match. And he's like, fuck this. Yeah. <laughs> he quickly gained his reputation as, quote, the angriest man in Hollywood. <laughs> Here's a great article written in 1959 Ugh. about Serling and the launch of his brand new TV series, The Twilight Zone. <laughs> James Heavey of the Binghamton Sunday Press, August 15th, 1959, writes, Angry young man, Serling too busy. How old is he at this point? He's 30. It was 1959. He's 35. Okay, yeah. cool. So he's not that old. No, yeah. He's, you know, but in, in, in 1950s age, he's in his 70s. <laughs> uh, or in cigarette age, I guess. <laughs> his lungs are 70. He's 35. So is he also like just a very outspoken like social rights advocate oh, yeah. and stuff like that? Oh, like, yeah, yeah. No, he, he did not. He didn't keep his opinions to himself cool. ever. You know, <laughs> were there like interviews and stuff of him? Or oh, dude, cool. countless. Wow. Um, in the '60s, he did some really good uh, 
a round of interviews with uh, universities, but this man did not mince words, and he cool. did not waste words. Like he, <laughs> everything he said. I mean, from what I've read yeah. you so far, you can <laughs> yeah. tell the the way that this man would speak. Yeah, you yeah, know? yeah. It's not a wasted word. He was, yeah. He, yeah. he he meant what he said. He said what he meant, and <laughs> he didn't bullshit. So <laughs> remember, uh, no I'm more su- jokes. I'm yeah. surprised this didn't get him blackballed just because of his opinions and stuff. I know. I mean, it's I because he was so good. How good of a writer he was. Everything he puts out is gangbusters. I mean, black. Man. Yeah, they're talking about rerunning shit for the first time ever because of <laughs> this guy. They invented the idea of a rerun <laughs> for him. Yeah, yeah, that's wild. Yeah, man. Was he ever involved in any like marches or anything like that? Were there any yeah. like um, direct action on his part? Anti-war marches. Cool. Uh, he gave a lot of money towards like the civil rights movement. Cool. Um, he was he was an activist through and through. Sick. And that might have been one of the reasons why we didn't see more of his work because he probably wasn't. A lot of people probably didn't want him. You yeah. know, I mean, a lot of networks didn't want to deal yeah with, with the controversy the, with the controversy yeah, you the, know we got the controversy of people's have rights yeah yeah exactly we don't want all that we got a lot of white people watching they're gonna feel real bad you know? <laughs> we don't want critical race theory on our televisions you know? <laughs> this article says a suddenly non-controversial rod serling said in binghamton last night that he's outlived the role of angry young man the 34-year-old writer has sounded off frequently from a point high on the totem pole of television dramatist about network taboos and program policies. The Binghamton reared Serling preferred last night to talk about the horrendous work schedule he's keeping these days, especially in connection with what will be a weekly series of 26 or 39 half-hour TV plays. Yeah, it was a lot, a lot of work, a lot of episodes. He said, uh, When I was younger... I could be called an angry young man. Now I'm just called petulant. (laughs) Some of his reasons for... (laughs) I thought that was a funny line, too. I'm just petulant. (laughs) It's not true, Rod. You're not petulant, man. You're just passionate. You're just right. You're just right. (laughs) Some of the reasons for being less controversial, he said, is the nature of his current work. He's having little trouble with sponsors' squeamishness. I'm dealing in acceptable stuff, he explained in reference to the new series. He's totally setting this up for like, I'm about to hit you with the most unacceptable, controversial (laughs) shit you've ever seen. This is like a man saying, like, I'm not going to murder you, and he's behind you with a knife. He's like, no, no, just calm down. Everything's going to be just fine. I love this, though. I'm sure this was sort of a campaign in his head of like, if I tell everyone it's not going to be controversial, they'll believe it it and let me do what I'm going to do. He's like conceding, but in the back of his mind. And then when they watch it, they'll be like, well, he said it wasn't supposed to be controversial, (laughs) so this can't be about what I think it's about yeah this can't be about equal rights for everybody because that's that's a controversy to me and i don't he said he wouldn't do that oh he explained the new series will have a heavy emphasis on fantasy (laughs) some of the recent hesitancy to criticize broadcasting policies he indicated is born of his own success he said he has reached a point when if an attempt is made to change his script he doesn't have to sell it and he's trying to avoid seeming to bite the hand that feeds me Mr. Serling said during an interview that he expects to have 22 of the initial batch of 26 plays in the coming series written, which will be seen first, uh, 10 p.m. October 1st. So wait, were the first episodes recorded live? Like, were they actually, like, live plays, or was he no, just using just flowery tele- language? They called them teleplays. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> it was an anthology series. Okay, you know? it was recorded and edited and everything. They had yeah, a lot okay. of flowery language around all this shit. A bunch <laughs> of dancing rabbits with fucking toilet paper. <laughs> teleplays. <laughs> what do they call movies? <laughs> 
t- uh, tell film mo- movie plays, <laughs> long plays, <laughs> long teleplays, oh. extended length teleplays. <laughs> <laughs> 17 of the plays, he said, are already on film. Besides doing a major part of the writing, Mr. Serling is a co-producer with CBS and narrator. I'm the boss, in a sense, (laughs) he explained, with such prerogatives as choice of cast and directors. The plays, he said, will exploit a tilt-shock type of ending. Uh, Title of the series is The Twilight Zone. (laughs) (laughs) yeah man i imagine he did that every time too (laughs) (laughs) super serious angry man just saying (laughs) rod why do you do that every time you'll see (laughs) (laughs) you'll see why you'll see why it's called foreshadowing damn it (laughs) yeah man foreshadowing indeed this man was like don't worry this will be palatable for you uh for you cheese heads <laughs> for you cheese factory bastards for you cheese stealers out <laughs> there steel cheesers this will be pa- palatable for you ford peddlers <laughs> fucks um. <laughs> twilight zone aired for five seasons the first three presented half-hour episodes. The fourth uh, was the one with the hour-long, and the fifth returned to the half-hour form- format. I personally like the half-hour, to be honest. Yeah. Uh, an hour of Twilight Zone kind of makes me feel like I need to go like mm-hmm. take a walk in the sunshine sometimes. <laughs> I love the show, but Jesus Christ, you know. Did, did the show end and then he died, or he died and then the show ended? No, the show ended bef- way before he died, actually. Why did the show um, end? If it, I'm assuming it was very successful. They tried to cancel it three times and it was it was very successful it was gangbusters too controversial controversial. wow cbs basically at all times was like oh is it time to end this shit so so, we had fun right so it's a whole family guy situation (laughs) yes exactly yes exactly the dramatic version of Chappelle show (laughs) and basically what happened is after five years 156 episodes of twilight zones 92 of these episodes were written by Serling's fucking hands himself. Wow. This man wrote 92 of these episodes, and basically, they both got sick of each other. He was sick of... Dealing with CBS. Yes. He's sick of dealing with CBS. Five times he has gone to CBS to ask whether or not they're doing a new season. Mm -hmm. So he has now had five discussions that were probably at length about you can do this series again, but you have to do it this way. Mm. So each year I'm sure he's just, it's just chipping away at him. He's yeah. just like, fuck it. I don't, I don't care anymore. Like, mm. I, I guess we won't do the show anymore then. Yeah. You know? So in 1964, he decided not to oppose its third and final cancellation, mm-hmm. which sucks, man. Yeah. It totally sucks. The man, I mean, I'm sure of course people kick themselves in the ass later on, but what a self kick in the ass CBS must have still yeah. to this day. To like, cancel their most popular show yeah. of all time because it's it's a little too little too woke for them. The, to this day the old the original series mm. with Rod Serling gets numbers yeah. like crazy. I mean yeah. every every Halloween, every mm. even like just Christmas and stuff. Like, yeah, uh, I wonder how much like Netflix paid to get it. Like, oh, I can imagine for it's, a while. I, yeah. yeah, I don't know what it's on right now. Hopefully, it's on HBO. Yeah, but I don't well, know. I have to look it up. And what sucks is you were asking about this earlier. You know what? Whatever became of him and Twilight Zone uh, when they canceled it, he sold the rights to CBS. Oh, he sold really? the whole thing. Mm. And apparently, his his Carol said it was because uh, his production company Cayuga was kind of in debt for the Twilight Zone because whatever CBS didn't pay for. 
Cayuga was he paying paid for. out of pocket. Yeah. So if they were like he really wants something, but CBS wasn't going to do it, he just yep. paid it out he of was pocket. Like, Fuck it, then I'll just pay for it. Yeah. yeah, cool. And so they say he kind of sold off his shares because he also had a lot to pay to off. to pay his debts off. Yeah, yeah, damn, totally sucks, man. Yeah. Um, it eventually resurfaced in the form of a 1983 film by Warner Bros. Former Twilight Zone actor Burgess Meredith, actually, uh, Rocky's trainer and mm. Rocky. Mm. <laughs> Not only that, I mean, yeah. he also was in Twilight Zone the original but yeah. you know that's what most people might remember as um he was the film's narrator for 1983 is this the one where uh, that we talked about on cursed films yeah yeah this was yeah, yeah. so wait, i was gonna i was gonna make the argument that you know had he continued to make oh. episodes maybe there wouldn't be the need for wow. a 1980s film and maybe we'd have three people, one dude and two little children wow. still alive. The ghost of Rod Serling haunted that Man. production. We'd be seeing Vic Morrow as like an old, fat, happy actor, <laughs> you know? So, <laughs> how crazy would that be if the three of them appeared in a previous old Twilight Zone episode? Oh my God. Like dude. they got murdered and they got sucked into the they vortex that <laughs> is Twilight Zone? Well, they're part of the cast now. The kids weren't born then. But uh, <laughs> wait, so wait, so I know time travel. Baby. I know time that there travel. were there were episodes in color at some point. Did those come after the movie? Those were after the movie. There have been Whoa. there were three attempts to revive the television series with uh, mostly new scripts. Uh, 1985, CBS used Charles Aidman and later Robin Ward as the narrator. So they did it again in 1985 in color. Mm -hmm. It was terrible, absolutely yeah. garbage. Mm -hmm. In 2002, UPN. Um, they featured Forrest Whitaker on the role of the narrator uh, of a Twilight Zone thing. And, of course, in 2019, CBS made a third attempt at a successful revival, even though they're the ones who fucking canceled the shit, with mm -hmm. Jordan Peele yeah. taking on... I still think it was garbage. I didn't really? like the Jordan Peele one either. I, I haven't seen it. Is it still going or is it canceled? I think it's still... No, it, I think it ran for like two seasons. And, and they it canceled went, it again? Yeah, they canceled wow. it. Wow. I love Jordan. But it's on CBS Access, right. so it's on their streaming service. It's not even on regular... Yeah, yeah. yeah, and that's the thing too. It's like that was supposed to be their prime, their premiere show on their streaming service. It just made but me want to go watch Black Mirror. Yeah, yeah. and also there's just there's so many streaming services. Like I don't know who owns who owns CBS right now. Warner Brothers, right? Yeah. You just got to fold that into hbo yep. like that's like if you're gonna bring it back bring it back as an hbo show yeah i know man um, i agree well okay so uh what did he do after twilight zone got canceled so uh well first i wanted to talk about my favorite episodes of twilight zone before okay. we go on uh right. my favorite one is season two episode 43 called nick of time and william shatner and pat breslin play this young married couple whose car breaks down in this little like idyllic town you know mm -hmm. And they have lunch at a diner when the car's, while the car is getting fixed. And there's this little devil head on the end of the, the table where they're mm -hmm. sitting. And it's basically a yes or no. You can put a penny in and ask it a yes or no question. And it'll spit out mm -hmm. this little piece of paper with a yes or a no on it. Mm -hmm. And it's just it's my favorite episode. It's just like it's it was Twilight Zone concentrate for me because mm -hmm. it was like things just get so weird. Mm -hmm in this sort of quick but not quick way and you sort of realize what you're in for i would say watch that episode if you want just a little taste of what twilight zone's all about and i, I you know because i'm a big proponent and sucker for isolated things that are basically dialogue between two people and that kind of sounds like that's what this is absolutely it is Sick. it's all of a sudden they begin to realize like this thing is 
they start asking it very specific questions and mm-hmm. it's getting it right. And this thing basically is happening of like, is this thing right? Or mm. is it just a coincidence? Yeah. And then it turns into this like mind melder and, you know, spoiler alert, like they can't leave the town and shit. Whoa. It's like, it's so Which episode cool, is that? Uh, this one, it was called in the Nick of time or just Nick of time mm-hmm. season two, episode 43, cool. Nick of time with Will, with old William Shatner before he would wow. do the, there's a man on the wing, something <laughs> on the wing. Also, I, it would be William Shatner that is the type of person to put in money to a stupid little device that prints out two words. <laughs> like, who the fuck is the inventor of that thing? The greatest con man ever to live. Hey, I'm just going to print a random yes or no, but give me 10 cents every time. It was Rod Serling's like, dad who invented this thing. For sure. <laughs> that was one of Rod Serling's father's like many inventions. Oh, man. But uh, the most popular ones are the monsters are due on Maple Street. Again, a, an incredible one about like humanity. A mm-hmm. uh, bomb's about to hit, and this one guy has a bomb shelter, and all the neighbors want in, mm-hmm. and it becomes this like who deserves to be in the shelter and who doesn't. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, time enough at last. I'm sure you've seen. Yes, the guy. there's yeah. finally time. There's finally time. I, yeah. I I make a joke about that episode every fucking day because <laughs> I have a stack of books that I have absolutely no time to read, uh. and so I always think of that fucking guy. There's time. <laughs> Then he breaks his glasses. Mm-hmm. God damn it, Rod yeah. Serling. Yeah. Sad bastard. I love you. Oh, uh, the cruel irony. Um, <laughs> I have the Beholder, the one that you said that was one of the, the biggest ones. Again, season two. Mm-hmm. Nightmare at 20,000 feet. There's a man on the wing. <laughs> you know, William Shatner again. What, uh, what season episode was that? That was season five, okay. episode three. Cool. Um, and that, So that was like late Twilight mm-hmm. Zone, you know. And there's one that's a good life, and there was one called To Serve Man, and those were all the top-rated ones. There's one, and I do not remember the name of it. It literally was something as simple as, like, an alien in a bar or some shit, mm. and it was about, like, this bus crashes, yeah. and they all go in this bar, yeah. and the bartender's an alien. The anyway. simple one, the simple ones are some of my favorites. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Me too. Just something mm-hmm. with, like, a little twist at the yeah, end. It was uh, always so much fun. Yeah. You know? uh, Great, yeah, great inspiration. But after that, yeah, after Twilight Zone, I actually recommend checking out this show as well. 1969, Rod did a show called Night Gallery, and it was set in a dimly lit museum after hours. It featured Serling as on-camera host again, playing the curator who introduced three tales of the macabre, unveiling canvases that would appear in the subsequent story segments. That's so cool. Really cool. This was interesting, though, for uh, for the Night Gallery. They basically fucked him again here. Um, he makes this show, The Night Gallery. It's supposed to, again, hard-hitting, poetic. It's supposed to, like, really grab you by the heart, grab you by the balls, you know. But they, they rotated the first season, six episodes of the first season. They rotated it with three other shows airing in the same time slot. And this was known as a wheel show. A wheel show was a block of shows that would all alternate time slots but would be butted up next to each other and they would call this block of shows something. This one in particular was called 4 and 1 where Night Gallery would go in, but you know like uh, animation domination. Mm. I think is a good it's a wheel. Yeah. So that this was like the 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 creation of all this oh. shit was where he found his Beloved Night Gallery series generally focused more on horror and suspense than the Twilight Zone did. The Twilight Zone was more of like a twisty. Night Mm -hmm. Gallery was like horror, you know. Cool. And so 
They fuck him again. <laughs> On the insistence of the producer, Jack Laird, Night Gallery also began including brief comedic blackout sketches, as they were known, during its second season. So, a blackout sketch, they're just like these short, slapsticky sketches. And they start slapping these things into fucking Night Gallery on the second season. It's like Family Guy yes. in the middle of a horror. Yeah. <laughs> Weird. Why? Yes. And I, I don't know. It was their producer. Their producer's just like, oh, Rod, this this is all very dark, man. Let's put some, like, uh, uh, somebody getting hit in the nuts in the middle of it. You know? Bizarre. Can dude. you imagine, <laughs> like, in the middle of, like, Silence of the Lambs? And he's like, remember the one time we had a Chianti? <laughs> He hits a guy with, like, a fucking kazoo, you know? Yeah. Rod stated, I thought they distorted the thread of what we were trying to do on Night Gallery. I don't think one can show Edgar Allan Poe and then come back with Flip Wilson for 34 seconds. I just don't think <laughs> that's they fit. <laughs> that, that's very true, though. Very true, man. Yeah, what the fuck were they even thinking? Like, that's not even a Rod is right on this one. That's just like a Rod is obviously fucking right on this one, you know? But yeah, man, that was about it for his TV career that I have here. Um, I do have like real quick thing about Night Gallery. So uh-huh. I'm looking it up, and uh, this infuriates me if this is true. Uh-huh. So if you want the complete, it was ran for three seasons. If you uh-huh. want the complete series on DVD, no problem. The Night Gallery, the complete series, it's out there. If you want this on Blu-ray. It appears that only the first season is on Blu-ray. Why the <laughs> fuck would you just put the whole series on there? Why is only season one on Blu-ray? Jesus. This is ridiculous. They're in the wheel. <laughs> They're in the wheel, man. I do want to tell you about some of his other stuff, though. Again, you know, his anti-war activism that I was talking about. Uh, Serling's experiences as a soldier left him with strong opinions about the use of military force. He was an outspoken anti-war activist, especially during Vietnam. He wrote something called The Rack. I'm going to tell you about some fun stuff that Rod wrote. Some very uh, heartwarming, uplifting things. Like The Rack. An example of Serling's use of television to speak his mind on political issues. The script for the United States Steel Hour. That was when this was aired. This was The Rack on the United States Steel Hour tells the story of an army captain charged with collaborating with the North Koreans. The New York Times reviewer J.P. Shanley called it controversial and compelling. Sterling tackled a question that was much in the media at the time. Should veterans be charged with a crime if they cooperated with the enemy while under duress? In this courtroom drama, the accused was put on trial for helping the enemy by urging fellow prisoners of war to cooperate with their captors. Serling offers many valid arguments on behalf of both the defense and the prosecution. Each has a strong case, but in the end, spoiler alert, the captain is found guilty. Um, Whoa. Uh, yeah, there was no narration. This is just one of the fun little things he was writing. <laughs> the other one, if you want to, like, this is perfect for Christmas uh, with your family, like with your kids. If you want something lighthearted for Christmas, Rod Serling did uh, one a movie called, I mean, a TV show. <laughs> 
called No Christmas This Year. <laughs> it well, was good. He wrote it earlier in his career, around 1950, but it was never produced until later on. It told of a place that no longer celebrated Christmas, although none of the residents knew why it was canceled. <laughs> Meanwhile, at the North Pole, the audience sees Santa Claus dealing with striking elves. <laughs> the elves are on strike. Oh my Rather God. than creating toys and candy, the North Pole manufactures a diversity of bombs and offensive gases. <laughs> Whoa. Santa has been shot at on his route, and an elf was hit by shrapnel. <laughs> oh, my God. So- oh, my God. <laughs> it's dealing with, like, labor union issues and war and, like... It's like Santa goes to World War II, <laughs> and he's peddling. He's an arms dealer in World War II. Just another fun oh. thing you can watch for your kids. What's this called? Not gonna lie... That is probably, that's the Christmas movie. We don't know it, but we all need. <laughs> so wait, these didn't get made? Uh, no, this one didn't get made, apparently. Oh, okay. No Christmas this year didn't get made. Ah, uh, okay. But the other one did, right? What? The uh, one that was played on the oh, Steel the Hour? Oh, The Rack? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was on okay. the United States Steel Hour. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah, right. That one got, that one got airtime. <laughs> thanks, thanks, American Steel. Is the script for, is the script for uh, No Christmas This Year floating around anywhere? Probably. Let's make it. Let's find <laughs> out where this is. It's probably sitting in like a, a dusty old drawer at CBS somewhere. <laughs> Uh, did so he never did anything in film? <laughs> yes, he did do some films actually. Actually, he wrote Planet of the Apes. Um, Serling took his 1972 screenplay for the film The Man from the Irving Irving Wallace novel of the same title. The black senator from New Hampshire and president pro tempore of the Senate, played by James Earl Jones, assumes the U.S. presidency by succession. So he basically wrote about like. Can you imagine if we had a black president? <laughs> and everybody's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Rod, Rod, look, maybe there's no Christmas. Maybe Santa's making bonds. But you can't go around saying stuff like that. You know, that's way too far, my man. Did the movie get made? Yeah, I think it when it got made. James Earl Jones. Wow. 1972. I've actually never heard of this, nor have I seen it. So wow. I'm very interested to look into that. Wow. Um, but yeah, of course, our good man, Rod... Uh, he met his end. He died on May 3rd, 1975, when Rod was the ripe old age of 50 years old. Uh, back in those days, the ripe old age. And the tale that I have about his death, this is what I have heard. This is the tale that I know. What I hear is that he was mowing his lawn one day, because he would do that. He would mow his lawn. He was like a normal guy with a house, you know. What I, and he was mowing his lawn one day, got so fucking angry at his lawnmower that he's like kicking it and screaming at it and shit and has a heart attack. And that one didn't kill him, but he had two more heart attacks after that. And the third one took him out. He finally died from a heart attack in 1975. His funeral and burial took place on July 2nd at Lakeview Cemetery in Interlaken, New York. Uh, memory was held at Cornell University Sage Chapel on July 7th, 1975, and speakers at his memorial included his daughter, Anne, and the Reverend John F. Hayward. Carol never remarried, and on January 9th, she also died, and she was buried next to him, actually. Wow, yeah. cool. That's. Do you think he was like, uh, during the first heart attack, he was like, nope, I can't go yet. 
Good writing comes in threes. <laughs> <laughs> I bet he churned out some good writing between heart attacks. Yeah, it, it looks something. like he stayed. Uh, looking at his IMDb, it looks like he stayed steadily working on stuff. Yeah. Just like uh, like 1966, he did another show called The Loner. A bunch of TV movies and stuff. Um, yeah, you know, uh, a bunch of like another TV show uh, here or there, like. Yeah, so he just like he was just kind of working on stuff, and they yeah. were probably all great, but they just never reached the same acclaim as like his other work. I guess right. at this point, maybe people gave him less less rope, so he might have just done it done it for, to make the money. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, for sure. Yeah, kind of man. beaten down by all the other all the other shit. His uh, his IMDb gets a little confusing because he's still credited for a bunch of stuff after he yeah. died. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, like yeah. he's he's credited for the 1994 uh, Twilight Zone, even though obviously you know. Right. Um. Oh. Nah, bro. He wrote that from beyond the grave. <laughs> <laughs> but don't worry. This is not. This won't be the last you hear of Rod Serling. I I'm. I fully plan on now doing like a dawn of television. But yeah, that is uh, the man, the myth, the legend that I wanted to bring you today for spooky season. That was Rod Serling with The Twilight Zone. Excellent. Well, I feel informed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I feel pretty informed here today. I, ho- I hope you got a lot of Rod Serling information. There's probably stuff that I've left out. This man... There was just too much. There's there there's I mean there's literally books written about him, so you know, I tried to condense everything into this however long this has been. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even know. Yeah. Um I mean no, it was a fascinating life. It's nice to hear that he was like a genuinely good guy. Yeah, yeah. Especially when going back that far, you know, it's hard to find like unproblematic people even under today's yeah. scrutiny and uh you know, that's something he shares with the CAG is, from everything we can tell, a non-problematic. And in Rod's case, like, the, an ethical pioneer. Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> man. He was he was saying stuff before anybody else was saying it. That is yeah. for sure. And, yeah, he was angry, but, again, I don't think he was as angry as people even made him out to be. I think yeah. he was just pissed off at the circumstances of being mm-hmm. censored every fucking which way from Sunday. Mm-hmm. And... His anger came from a very real, uh, justifiable place. Yeah, you know, very cool. I think he was angry at the world, and he was angry. I, I can imagine he was in this place where we're in one of the worst uh, times in history when it comes to race relations and gender relations and all the things that we're still talking about today. And he just thought, like, we have this thing that we could really spread the message on. And really get out our our thoughts, and instead of that, we're making cheese commercials, you know, and we're yeah. we're basically just perpetuating this like corporate monster, and they now not only own all of America, but they own television as well, where we're supposed to be free. Yeah, you know? cool. Yeah. And I love that he was committed for the most part to the television medium. You know what I mean? It was clearly something he saw as an innovative way to tell stories in a medium that allowed him to do stuff you couldn't do in film. Right. um, Because of the format difference. And he really stuck to that, you know, like obviously he did a little bit of work in the, in the film business, but like he was really adamant about television was his medium, which I think is really cool. Yeah. Well, that was (laughs) a fascinating and interesting journey into the mind of uh, one of TV's greatest writers, I suppose. Um, if you would like to uh, indulge yourself in content that's not nearly as good, you can find <laughs> me at Drake Cummings on Instagram, at Drake underscore Cummings on Twitter. You can follow me on TikTok at Hollywood Drake. You can check out my clothing line, uh, Raging20sMerch.com. It's a uh, take 
on being in the 20s again. It was the Roaring 20s, now we're in the Raging 20s. Uh, Dev. Uh, you can find me on the gram at sailor underscore dev and follow all of uh, my projects for Abracadabra Films everywhere on all platforms. Love it. And you can find film history out there on film history, the history of film, all over the socials, FHHF podcast, uh, all that good stuff. You can find me at either James Wyatt Scott or Jimmy Deloy, depending on where you're looking. And you can also find me... It isn't enough for a soul voice of reason to exist. In this time of uncertainty, we are so sure that villains lurk around every corner that we will create them ourselves if we can't find them. For while fear may keep us vigilant, it's also fear that tears us apart. A fear that sadly exists only too often outside film history. The history of film. The Twilight Zone. <laughs> <laughs> You know what I'm talking about!